How many best picture Oscar winners can you name starting in 1990 mm -hmm. all the way through today? I'll give you one hint. Mm -hmm. um, there are 33. 33, okay. Uh, let, let's, let's start with, with most recent, Coda. We'll go back, we'll do Parasite. We'll do Nomadland, Spotlight. Um, 12 Years a Slave, God, the 12 Years a Slave one. Uh, let's go to Titanic, let's go to um, Argo. Uh, oh man, I'm failing miserably at this and I call myself the awards ace, this is a problem. You're actually uh, doing great. <laughs> I gotta think, okay, great. so I'm thinking, obviously, okay, what should have won, I can tell you right now, just doing this list and what already annoys me that I'm doing this, that I'm thinking that the social network did not win Best Picture. And for that, the whole thing just makes me just want to, ah, I mean, this is, you're talking about a film in my estimation that's perfect. So when you when you watch The Social Network and you find out the King's Speech won Best Picture over it, that just makes me furious. Why do you think that is? Because there's so few films that we see that are truly spectacular across the board, really exemplary in every single aspect. And when you watch The Social Network, you're looking at a film that obviously direction, screenplay, cinematography, score, the Reznor Ross score is, is I think that's the cherry on top. That's what makes that film the true masterpiece that it is, is that it's the choices that Reznor Ross did in that score from that opening scene when he's walking across Harvard Square, you say, oh my God, this is unique. And this was not a choice that most composers would do. And, and the fact that Fincher allowed them to work in that space and create something, again, if you give that to any other composing duo, composer, singular, you're talking about a different film because they're not going to come up with that score. And I think that is really what cements that as a masterpiece. But performances, uh, everything in that film is, is perfection. And the fact that it didn't win Best Picture is, again, just, I think it's got to be the biggest crime in the history of the Oscars, the fact that it did not win Best Picture. And then the King's Speech, what is it about that film? Or it maybe it's nothing, it's just in comparison. It's, it, that's what it is. It, it's not about... It's not about the King's Speech. It's about selecting. For me, it's, it's, it's really about identifying what's the best film. What is the best film that we saw this year that hits everything that you're looking for? And, and I think when I watch a film, and I, I try to say I'm more of a film evaluator than a film critic, you look at it and you say, what are the aspects that shine here? What, what is truly worthy of spotlighting this for an award's purposes? And when you watch a film like again, social network, you, you see it in every single category you're looking for. Literally everything, even production design, uh, which is lower down the list for that film, but it still creates a world, which is very hard to do. Um, and I think that's one of the key components for, for any film is, is world building, and that is production design. And I think that when you, when you have a film that hits everything and it doesn't win, that's what. That's the hard part. That's the thing for me. It's like, yeah. It, it's at the end of the day, it's just a trophy that says you, you're the best film. Doesn't mean it is, but it should have been that film that year. And that's what I think it is. It's not about King's Speech. It's about Social Network being truly perfection. Well, it's public acknowledgement too, uh, and, and and acknowledgement of a group of sort of gatekeepers that say, okay, you're yep. worthy. And so, 2011 King's Speech. Did you know going in? There's no way the social network's going to win. No, I, I thought for sure. Listen, at the end of the day, you, you still have hope that they're going to pick the right, the number one film, right? And yours might be different, but overall, when you look at and you're, you know, you watch 
hundreds of films a year and you see the one that is very clearly the best film. I mean, I go back, obviously they got it right with Parasite, another film that is true perfection. Uh, occasionally, uh, they are going to miss. It's just going to happen. It's just the, the law of averages are going to say that it's going to go to something else. I mean, this year I wouldn't have picked Coda, uh, uh, for sure. Um, I mean, I think I think Coda is is a very likable film. Do I think that it holds up to the, you know, when we look back at, at Oscars, 2022, are we going to say Coda is filmmaking that is truly going to, you know, pass the test of time? I don't think so. Uh, I think it's a it's a likable film, but I just don't think it hits again when I watch a film. For me, it's really technical. It's so important to a film. The tech for me is where I really get dialed in. Like when I watch The Batman, I mean, I see Matt Reeves and I say, this is a director. When I go back and I watch Let Me In. Uh, you just know that this is a, a, a person that has a skill that is extremely unique and they have a vision that is singular. And those are the things that for me, uh, as I'm assessing, you know, awards value for a film, you're, you, those are the films that you want to see succeed. So a director like Ty West, mm -hmm. oh. who's creative and edgy, will Love he it. ever receive an Oscar? Not for X. I mean, he's not gonna, he's not going to win for X. Uh, but when you watch, and I go back and I remember Innkeepers from Ty West, and I don't remember thinking too much of that film or the direction. But whatever happened between Innkeepers, roughly a decade ago, and X, I mean, X is when you watch that film, you are looking at a director who has again that skill that is and the artistic vision that most people don't possess. And it's, it could be a traditional remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, right? And it's not. It is, it's got so many layers to it. And I think the choices, the landslide scene in X, um, you know, Fleetwood Mac, I mean, that is truly, when you watch that film, the way it's edited, the way it organically flows from the film, uh, and just all of a sudden, he, he starts on the guitar and it, and it starts into the montage of Through the Years. It is, that is the best sequence that I have seen in several years um, as a singular sequence of a film, the landslide sequence in X. Uh, do I hope Ty West will be uh, a best director one day? Absolutely. And I think he, no question, he possesses the skill. Mm -hmm. uh, but he's been working in the horror realm. Let's hope. I know he's got Pearl coming up later this year. They shot him back to back, right? They shot the prequel and during, well, they shot X. So Pearl's coming out this fall. And uh, I can't wait to see that as well. But he's someone that's on the radar as somebody who, you know, going forward, I, I would not be surprised if this is somewhere we're talking about in the in the Finchers, in the Nolans, you know, the Villeneuve's. When we get up to that top level, Ty West is absolutely going to be there one day. Sure, sure. And he's still very young. Too. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I, how old is he? I don't even know how old he is. Yeah, I, mean, I don't look, know. He's probably in his late 20s, 30s. But he's got such a, I think that's, when you watch a film, when, when I go to see films, you're, you're really looking for that, that talent that pops and you say, wow, this is again, remarkable skill and singular vision that the average person, you know, you see so many films and you see decent direction, you see above average direction, and then you see what Ty West did next. Um, or David Fincher in Social Network or any number of films, obviously from Fincher. But when you get to those, that, that level of skill, is is uh, that's the treat? That's the cinematic treat that we're all looking for. So, nineteen ninety, Driving Miss Daisy. Mm -hmm. Nineteen ninety one, Dances with Wolves. Ninety two, Silence of the Lambs. Ninety three, Unforgiven. Ninety four, Schindler's List. Ninety five, Forrest Gump. Ninety six, Braveheart. 
97, The English Patient, 98, Titanic, 99, Shakespeare in Love, 2000, American Beauty, 2001, Gladiator, 2002, A Beautiful Mind, 2003, Chicago, 2004, The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, 2005, one of my favorite, excuse me, uh, Million Dollar Baby, mm -hmm. 2006, another favorite, Crash, 2007, The Departed, 2008, No Country for Old Men, 2009, Slumdog Millionaire, mm. 2010. Danny Boyle. Oh. I love Danny Boyle. Yes, you do love Danny oh. Boyle. We have, yes. Yeah. You can keep going. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay. We'll, we'll come I love back to Danny him. Boyle. Yeah, That's yeah. A, oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we're paying homage to Danny Boyle. <laughs> uh, 2010, Hurt Locker. 2011, The King's Speech. 2012, The Artist. 2013, Argo. 2014, 12 Years a Slave. 2015, Birdman. Yes. I okay. like Birdman. Mm -hmm. 2016, Spotlight. Mm -hmm. Twenty, spotlight. Yeah. 2017, Moonlight. 2018, The Shape of Water. 2019, Green Book. 2020, Parasite. 2021, Nomadland. 2022, Coda. Coda. Yeah. Okay. okay. I mean, overall, when you, when you list off the... When we go back to 1990 and you, you look at those films, I, there's not a whole, there's not a film in there that I say, wow, this is not worthy of being best picture. I don't see, there's not one, even Crash. I mean, listen, I'm not suggesting that Crash is, is the all-time best movie ever made, but I understand how people respond to the film. I think that's one of the, the things that you have to be able to do when you go in and, and you critique a film or evaluate a film is you're trying to, for me, is figure out what is the audience for this film? And do you understand how this audience for the film will be able or will not be able to embrace this film? And I think that when you watch a film um, like Top Gun Maverick, you, you see it. I saw it you know, three weeks ago before it opened, and I said, this is a film that will be loved by 99% of the people that see it. 99% because it is that it's it gives you everything that you want for a movie going experience for the average moviegoer right um, understand the spectrum of moviegoers is extremely wide and and but, but at the end of the day when you're talking about a film that's going to appeal to a large swath of the movie going public uh, you have to identify something like Top Gun Maverick is going to work. And it did. I said it's going to get an A-plus cinema score. It did, which means perfect word of mouth, right? That means people are going out of Top Gun Maverick and they're saying, you have to see this film, which doesn't happen very often. That, that true organic love for a film that spreads like wildfire because everybody who goes to see it comes run out and they become an apostle. Like, hey, you got to go see Top Gun Maverick. And that's what's happening. And I think when you look back at from 1990 on, to most of those films, most of those films have that. Even Coda, which I said I have plenty of issues with from a filmmaking perspective, it still has that aspect of word of mouth being strong where people say, oh, I really liked Coda. And you need to have that because that's, and King's Speech is that way. Uh, so you understand how that happened. People like the feel that the King's Speech gives you. Um, conversely, I understand how The Social Network is not an uplifting film, but it doesn't have to be. Like, There's no law that says films have to be uplifting. One of the things I love about a film from the past uh, two plus decades up in the air is the fact that it isn't a, a, a buttoned up ending in bow tie and everybody, he, he gets the girl. That's what makes up in the air the film it is. Same with La La Land, exact same thing. Is I think that's what makes the, the film what it is, is the fact that it's not a perfect finish to a film. But 
some audience people t- members do not like that. They want they want to have they want to go home feeling good, and so I think that's that will that's one why people don't like La La Land as much or Up in the Air. I remember my ex wife at the time was like, I hate it Up in the Air. Why you didn't get the girl? I'm like, that's why it's good. That's exactly why it's good. Where did you see the first Top Gun? In Columbus, Ohio. Yeah, I was I was uh, you know an '80s kid, and Top Gun came out, and it was. Listen, you go back to, to the 80s and you know, I mean, listen, we grew up in a similar era and, and you, you say to yourself, uh, what a difference it was back then, right? Because back then it was just, you didn't you had three networks, okay, and PBS. We didn't even have Fox at that time. You had television, you had radio, that was it, right? And you had movies and you went to a movie and that's all you had. So you had this just everyone would talk about one thing which we don't have as much anymore these days because there's so many choices to what you can spend your free time on your entertainment time on uh, back then it was movies network television or radio and when we would go to the movies and I saw Top Gun and uh, it, it just you know I was a young kid growing up I'm like I want to be like Maverick I want to be that guy and uh, you know this the soundtrack came we all had the cassette not the CD CDs weren't around not the vinyl Although I had vinyl, didn't have the vinyl of that, I had the cassette, wore it out. CBS Records. I remember going backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards on that thing. Because in the old days, for those of you who don't remember, the, the cassettes were a pain in the butt to go for the next song. You had to fast forward and then hit it perfectly at the right time. But but that film was a phenomenon. I mean, it was what everybody was talking about. Top Gun was the thing. I remember being uh, in high school and they had the Top Gun. Uh, we had like assembly and and the cheerleaders went out there and danced to like two different songs from Top Gun. It's like that's how it was a phenomenon, right? And it's hard to to find that these days. And I think that's the magic of of eighties of of Top Gun or any real major film in the eighties. Go back and look at the Lost Boys. Oh God, Lost Boys. Um, you know these are films that that really shaped who I am. And I, we had so many great films in the eighties. I mean, I, I saw all these films in theaters too. Go back, E.T., Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, Aliens, uh, Cocktail, my God, uh, Cocktail for as, as, as absolutely fluffy, forgettable as it is, it is a film that I love. It's one of those guilty pleasures, right? And there's so many of those in the 80s. Um, but I mean, Lost Boys was a film that I saw and I said, wow, this is cool. I just love, that's a film that is, if you had 20 best films I've ever seen, Lost Boys is on the list. Even Vision Quest, and I'm not a wrestling fan, but there was something about that opening with the Journey song and the the bus, and and it got you excited. And and I feel like some of that's lost these days. Well, you know, you say that, it's it's funny, like Cocktail, the beginning of Cocktail, like you said, the beginning of the Starship song that that he gets on the bus and he's going off to New York to be this uh, big famous business guy. Um, Is you remember those things, and like you said, there's just something about. About the way 80s films were made. And I think that's what you, when you watch Top Gun Maverick, you see that, right? When you see what Kaczynski did at the beginning of that film with the intro, with the Top Gun theme bleeding into Danger Zone, it's that's an 80s start, right? It's just it, here's your here's your credit scene, your your beginning credit scene, which you don't usually get in film these days. And it was such a smart move. And I think that sets you up for everything it delivers. But the 80s were, I mean, uh, again, I, you could list a zillion movies, even going back to the you know garbage uh, slasher films. These are all the things that, that got me into film. 
Sure, and all the right moves. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it, the diversity, right? The diversity. <laughs> Sorry. No, yeah. the diversity of all the films <laughs> right, right. That, that we had in the 80s, uh, just, it was just anything goes. And I think that, um, you know, some people devalue 80s films and say they're forgettable fluff, they're this and that. Um, but, but I think of so many, I mean, one of my favorite comedies of all time is Real Genius with Val Kilmer. I mean, he, he, the character that Val Kilmer is in Real Genius reminds me a lot. I often wonder, did Ryan Reynolds watch Real Genius? Because his persona, and I love Ryan Reynolds. I think he's great. He's, he's very good at that sarcastic, snarky guy. Uh, very quick-witted. Uh, you go back and watch Val Kilmer in Real Genius, and you're like, that is very much like what Ryan Reynolds is these days. I think Val Kilmer in Top Secret, same thing. He's just, Val Kilmer is such an underrated actor. Um, I think we're all coming around to that now with Top Gun Maverick and seeing him in the film and, and certainly the documentary from last year. Uh, but, you know, Real Genius is just, uh, what a great comedy. I could, I've watched that film probably 30 times. Do you see the same quality movie from the 1990s winners to today's winners? I mean, I think we are in a space where uh, you, you look at some of the films. People always say this. Would, would we have the same films made today that we did back in the 90s or the 80s? And I think that the answer to that is I don't think all of them would. I don't think that we would see some of those films made today. Um, but... I think right now is such an interesting time because you have a film in theaters right now that is very much of an 80s, 90 revival, and that is Top Gun Maverick again. And when you look at Top Gun Maverick, it's absolutely, the reason it's connecting is because it, it doesn't feel, nothing in the film feels forced. It feels like it is organic, and I think that is one thing that has to be part of your film no matter what you're doing you have to make it feel like everything in the film is there for a reason and is not in absolutely wedged in because it has to be okay and that there's many different definitions for what that is but i think that when i watch top gun maverick i see a, a hearkening back to this we're just going to make a good film and we're not going to think so much about what has to be in or what doesn't have to be in we're just going to make the film that we want to make um, and I think that, that that's, a, that's a thing that studios have a challenge with. Uh, I think that a lot of studios are, are, have issues doing that. I think Paramount has really nailed the fact that they just make films that are very likable. Uh, and they, they look at what they've had this year. They've had Scream did very well for them. Jackass Forever, not a fan of the series, but still successful film. Uh, Lost City was good for them. Sonic 2. They, and even Clifford, the, the Big Red Dog movie, was actually somehow entertaining. I couldn't believe it. But Paramount is doing the right thing right now and now with Top Gun Maverick. They, whoever's running that, the creatives there are in the right space, I think, for making a movie that appeals to a wide audience. And, and we need that. We need to have films that appeal to that huge part of the movie going pie because that, in turn, will flow down to some of these smaller films uh, because the studios have more people going to film, so they're going to have more money and they're going to spend more money on product because, obviously, film... Cinema is back, okay? So when we were back in 2020, we all know people were saying, are movies ever going to come back? Are people going to go to the movies? Do they feel safe? And, and, and there were a lot of people that said, I don't know if it's ever going to come back. I don't, I don't think this, is, this might be done. And I was like, no, this isn't done. I mean, theaters are, are cathedrals. They're are, you know, houses of worship 
for cinema. And for me, again, going back decades, it's a place that I go to just escape the world, right? And get locked in to a film for an hour and a half, two hours, and you are just there. You're lost. You're not thinking about anything else. And, you know, sometimes studios will send me a screening link. Say, hey, do you want to watch this at home? I'm like, no, I don't. Because I get distracted. You put it on, and then you get a text. You get bored. You grab your phone. When you're at a theater, your full attention is there, right? You made the effort to come to the theater to watch this film, and there's something magical about that being locked in. That experience cannot be replicated at home. You know, it's just, it's impossible. Uh, because the distractions will enter in, and it's just, and also the communal aspect of it, right? The communal aspect of a film, in ingesting in a film, as it were, is is really when you watch it with a, with an audience, you say to yourself, uh, you 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 all experience these emotions at the same time, which again is so rare, as we talked about earlier, about that that everyone's doing one thing that we all grew up in the 80s where it was only this and this. Now we've got so many different options that we rarely have that opportunity to come together and experience one thing at one time. And uh, that's the magic of, of movie going. And I think that's why it's not going away. And it's great to see it back because it's, it's back. I mean, you look at all these films that have done well over the last few months, starting obviously today with Top Gun Maverick, going back to everything everywhere all at once that's over 50 million domestic for a small independent film. Uh, that is back to 2019 levels. And I think that it's absolutely should be encouraging for everybody because we need it. We need films, you know, like Nicole Kidman says. <laughs> well, forgive me, I have not seen Top Gun Maverick yet. No. But does it try to be an 80s film or does not? It, it, it lets itself be current uh, you know, I think it does a great job. Maverick does a Top Gun Maverick does a really good job of being a little bit of both, being an '80s film, um, late '80s film, and then into what we have today. I, again, I think that the magic of the film for me and how that film really works is that it is so spiritually connected to the original and has so much love for the predecessor that. I was shocked when I watched the film that it was so connected organically to it without it feeling forced. And I think these days you, you see so many things that feel like, again, we're going to absolutely impart this in here and it's whether we're just going to do it and it might not serve the story. It might not be organic, grounded in, in the original. And Maverick finds a way to do that and to couple it to the original that makes it, um, a get, this is why everyone loves the film because it, it really is able to do that. And I think people do respond to when things are grounded and they are organic versus they are forced. I mean, it's just, that's, that's what, what we know. We have that internal judge that goes and go, that person is full of BS or that person is authentic. And I think the film feels authentic. And if your film doesn't feel authentic and it feels like parts of it have been uh, or inorganically altered, as it were, uh, then it, you're going to notice that and it's not going to resonate with you as fully as it would is if it feels like it is all in service of the story and it, it works as a whole for the complete film and, and your movie going experience. When you left the theater, were other people just as excited? About oh God, it? yeah. I mean, when, when I came out of that, we saw press screening two and a half weeks before it came out. And uh, I have not, I've been to hundreds of press screenings and you know when you have something special. Um, you know when everybody's on the same page, when they come out and they're all like, oh my God, oh, did you, you know, everyone has the little conversation outside. What'd you think of the film? And, and I try not to say too much because I, one thing that's interesting when you come out of a film, 
I, I almost want to hold my reaction uh, and not tell anybody because I don't want to be tainted by anyone else's opinion. So I try to stay away from what other people say until I have a chance to see it because we all will be. If you if you listen to enough people who say this movie is the best movie ever made and then you go into it thinking that, then of course your expectations are high and then the film ends up being a little under the best movie ever made and then you are, you know, you've been affected by by the uh, the words that you've heard. But Top Gun Maverick was was one of those films you come out of and you just knew when the critics are all on the same page, when virtually everybody is like, this is really a grand slam of a film, then you know you are in something special. And when you have those, you have that happen from time to time in, in screenings. I mean, I go back, one of the screenings I'll never forget was in Boston for a, a, The Raid. The Raid is is really, truly, The Raid Redemption is, is one of my favorite, it's probably the best action film of all time, I think, really, if you look at that film. And I remember sitting in that press screening in Boston with a bunch of my buddies, there's is lightly attended, probably 25 of us in this gigantic theater. And I've never experienced a film where people are getting out of their seats and shouting, right? It has so much just emotional punch and testosterone just flowing throughout that film uh, that I never will forget that moment. And I go back to the raid and I just, it's one of those, that's again, cinematic experience I'll never forget. I would not have had if I watched a screener at home. Wouldn't have been anywhere near the same. How do you judge a movie? What's your rating system? It is it really, when I look at a film and I'm watching it, I'm evaluating a film and I'm determining, is it accomplishing what it's setting out to accomplish? So what is the mission of the film? What, what is the filmmaker trying to do with this film? You know, when you watch a film like Hereditary, what Ari Aster is trying to do with that film is much different than what uh, Kaczynski's doing with, with Top Gun Maverick. They're, they're, but, but yet, so you're judging them in ultimately what were they trying to do with the story, okay? And did they deliver it in the way that, in the best possible way that that they were uh, capable of doing? And I think that it's it's one of those things when you you just you have to you obviously have to see a lot of films to to know what what is what is of a good quality, of an excellent quality, and then a absolutely you know otherworldly stratospheric quality. You need to see plenty of films to get to that point. But, but those are rare. Uh, but I think that you're ultimately just trying to figure out what is the director trying to do here and did they do it with maximum impact. And Top Gun Maverick is stratospheric? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I mean just because, of, because it delivers what it was intending to do and does it above even that level. So you're expecting the sequel that's kind of just there, right? It's, it's, it's a sequel. We see so many sequels that are just kind of unnecessary, right? They make it and it's just a money grab and there's no real uh, emotional value to it. And I think that this film, what people are resonating, why it's doing the, the business it's doing, it's going to continue to do over the next several weeks, months, and years is that it gives you all of those pieces that you're looking for and and that is rare that that it's able to do that especially in a sequel it's very difficult to do um, but but when you watch a film i think ultimately for me when i when i'm out evaluating a film and i'm watching it um, you never want to dislike a film ever you, you want to like a film i i don't drive across town to century city to watch to beverly hills to to the fox lot to santa monica you don't drive all those places in rush hour traffic to go watch a film and go, this is terrible. You don't want to do that. You want to like everything. I think a lot of people think that we you go in and say, ah, oh, no, they, they, they wanted to hate this film. Uh, just saw Crimes of the Future. 
I wanted to like it. I, I love Cronenberg, but this is a film that feels flat. This is a film that is going to be for an extremely narrow uh, audience. It's just, it's not, and it, it, it's just a dull film. And I think that I wanted to like it. But, but you don't ever go in wanting to dislike a film. It just happens, right? <laughs> so you, you try to remain as detached as possible. And I think one thing that's very important when, you, when you're watching a film, if you love a director, let's say that I'm going to see the next Safdie Brother films, and I mean, Good Time is one of my favorite films of the past decade. Easy. I mean, that is just absolutely gangbusters. Everything about that film is just... Uh, but if I see the next Safdie Brothers film, I'm going to try to get all that out of my head, and I'm going to say, what are we doing here? Um, it's not obviously entirely possible to get rid of all of the the goodwill that you had from before, but you've got to try to go in there as much as possible with a blank slate so that you don't become like, oh, this is the Safdie brothers, so that means that I'm going to have to love this or it's going to be great. It doesn't mean that. We see plenty of directors that have maybe their best film is their first film, right? And they go down. Then we have directors who go up or we have some that plateau, whatever that is. Um, every film has to be evaluated on its own, not as part of a legacy of a director or an actor or a studio or a distributor, any of these things. You have to just go in there and be as unbiased as possible. And I, for, some, for some people, it's, it's difficult. I think it is. I think it's, uh, it, the, you, you, it's hard to fight that. I want to like this film. Um, or you know, I, I know this is going to be good. Or I know this is going to be bad. There's some people that, that go in like that. You have to be as down the middle as possible when you go to see these films. And I think that ultimately, the people that resonate with you, that they, they listen to you or they read your reviews or they, they listen to your words about any given film, they know that you are uh, a fair critic and you're not biased. You are not trying to uh, impart your own. You're trying to just judge this film on its own individual merits, period. Right, regardless of who the director is, regardless of the actors involved, the studio, it's all about just that singular film and what is on the screen. And how much do you think the original actors being in the sequel contributes to the public loving the film? You have to. I mean, other than Kelly McGillis, right, who's not in this, you, you I think it's it's important to bring that. You have to have obviously those original characters. You don't want to recast all those or not bring some of them back. I mean, you in Top Gun Maverick, you brought almost everybody back, right? You have Cruz, uh, Kilmer comes back. Sorry if that's a if that's a spoiler. Uh, it's out there. I think everyone knows that by now. Uh, Miles Teller does a great job as Goose's uh, son. Obviously, Anthony Edwards does not come back. Um, but but when you look at that that film, it's it's the characters are there that you know, so you already go in there with familiarity, which is not uh, something to be taken lightly. So I think that the director had again. I think that Kaczynski, when you look at that, he has an absolute, uh, very much of a reverence for the predecessor for Top Gun, and um, that may not have been the case for for everybody who took that project on. Okay, Blade Runner. Oh, old versus new. No, oh, Blade Runner original. Oh, Blade Runner. Yeah, no, Blade Runner eighty two, right? Eighty two. Yeah, I think so. No, Blade Runner is. It's not even a comparison. People say Blade Runner twenty forty nine or Blade. Oh my God, no, Blade Runner. And and you got. I mean, going back, that that film has has stood the test of time. I mean, when you watch Blade Runner today, in its many. Uh, forms, right? There's so many different versions of that film from the narration to the no narration to to so many, but whatever version you're watching, 
Uh, what Scott did with that film was so far ahead of its time. And the fact that it still looks like something that we could see on the screen today and not be like, well, this looks really dated, right? The effects, the Vangelis score, um, obviously Harrison Ford. Um, and you, you, you look at that film and it's a film that really uh, expands your mind, especially as a young kid watching that film. It, it, that's, a, that's absolutely one of the seminal films for me when I talk about films that really created my cinematic soul. It's, it's Blade Runner. And then when I sat and watched Blade Runner 2049, um, as much as I appreciate Denis, and I think that he is one of our best directors, I think that he, in that film, almost every scene in 2049 runs too long. Uh, it goes past its natural expiration date, right? So you have this natural point where the it feels like the, the scene's, that's it, let's go to the next scene, and we are still there for a minute or two afterwards. I think that's the flaw of 2049 is. There's a, there's a lot to like in that film, but usually my role, rule is this. Whenever I look at a film, it's almost always this, right? Less is more. Almost always. And I think 2049 at less is better than 2049 at more, which is what we got. Which is interesting because when you watch Dune, when I sat through Dune, I was expecting to see the exact same issues I saw in 2049 um, because I, I figured he he didn't learn. He's gonna you know he's gonna do the same thing he did with with Blade Runner 2049, and that's not the case. Dune uh, really. The pacing of Dune is, is something that I was surprised at. I was expecting that film again to each scene go well past where the natural edit point should be. And it lingers on. That film doesn't. Somehow it managed to, and that's why Dune was my favorite film of, of last year. I mean, it wasn't even a contest. Uh, Dune, the filmmaking to the story. I don't care. You know, the funny people say, oh, it's a part one. We can't, we can't give it best picture because it's part one. Why? What are the rules? Who says that? Right? Who says that we have to do Return of the King and wait for that? I mean, if you you talk about that, you're, Lord of the Rings Two is very clearly the best of that, those three films. I mean, I think there's no contest to that. But yet it didn't win. But we have Return of the King winning. So, you know, who's to know if Dune Two is going to be better than Dune One? But this whole mindset of we can't give it best picture, we can't say it was the best film of, of the year because it's only the first part and it wasn't a full film. Why? Well, what, I don't. What, am I missing a rule? Um, so I think that mindset of that's another thing that I think we have a major problem with is is with awards for sure is we can't do this because this film doesn't fit into the parameters of what an awards film is right it, it's it, it's not a horror film we can't have a horror film be a best picture like really why can't we why can't we have hereditary as a best picture I mean talk about a film that knocks you on your ass and granted makes you feel like hell but that's the point. You know, when I talked to Ari Aster, it was at the A24 party um, at Christmas, and I saw Ari Aster, and I said, I'm gonna let you know, when I first came out of Redditor, I did not like your film. And then I thought, and I said, no, actually, I love it, because you made me feel like hell. Like I'd just been through uh, true hell, and, and that's, the, that's the power of Hereditary. And that is absolutely, well, certainly one of the best horror films of all time, in my estimation, um, but why can't that be a best picture? Why can't? I mean, just because it makes you feel like absolute crap doesn't mean it can't be a best picture. But I mean, we all know that that's not the world we live in. We live in this world of it has to be this upper kind of thing. I mean, again, go back to Coda, uh, a true upper of a film, right? Absolutely. Um, and but but I don't. I think we have this problem where we have to say this film is this. We have to. It can only work in this arena. X is a great example. Same thing from this year. Listen, if you ask me, the two best films I've seen this year, it is X 
and Top Gun Maverick for very different reasons, but both because they're extremely well directed. So, really, for me, it starts at direction. The number one thing for a film is direction. There's not even a, a question. You can give an average screenplay to an, a stud of a director, a star, absolute, you know, top shelf director is going to take an average screenplay and make a decent film. Conversely, an average director given a great screenplay, you might be in trouble, right? Because the choices are different. Uh, not everybody's going to make the same film. I mean, you, you could watch so many different versions of any given film based on who the director is. I think it's a very singular individual skill and the vision, the artistic vision of a director is the number one thing for a film. And so if the direction is strong, the, the likelihood of me liking it is going to be very high. Do you know usually within a minute, within an opening? No, you, you no, mm -hmm. no. You, you have a feel, you can know it's going to go down, but I don't know if you know if you can go up. So if it's really like the beginning and just like some, some of the choices are really like, wow, that's, that's something, then you start to go, okay, we're in trouble. But I think that uh, unless, I mean, even Top Gun Maverick, I mean, the beginning, I absolutely love. I think it's a perfect choice for that film. But I didn't at that point say, okay, that means that the whole rest of the film is going to be good. I think that's the danger too. You have to constantly, when you're watching a film, you have to constantly be on this balance board of trying to say, is what I'm watching working or not? And that can change throughout the film. You could start low and end up high. I mean, I go back to a film looper. Um, Ryan Johnson's film. I mean, that is a film that I was down on, down on. I, I was up, then I was down, and then the choice at the end was put me back up. So that his choice of what what the characters do makes Looper a film that I recommend. But I was up and down on that, like a roller coaster. So I think that's the key. You're you're constantly evaluating it. It's almost like you, you literally have things strapped right to your, and you're you can almost judge those levels of where you are on what you're watching, and you have to be that way throughout the whole thing because it could change. You could love a film all the way up until the end, or dislike it until, like I said, Looper up. Um, so you know you hopefully are going to start pretty high and stay and ride up, right? Um, it's rare that you see something that starts really low and then you end up really high. So, right. So, so I guess if you see something that's not good, yeah, that might be. But it's rare. I mean, most films don't come out of the gate and like, oh my god, this is terrible. Even Firestarter, I just, I just watched Firestarter. But get, the weird thing about Firestarter, the remake, is that the first twenty-five minutes are decent. You watch this film, you're like, I like some of these choices. I like the the title sequence is really strong. But that's a film that starts here and goes down across the board. So those are those are rare too. What's the most you've rewatched a film in the theater? Same film. Hmm. God, do I want to answer this? <laughs> it's probably a tie. Is it Paddington Bear? Yeah, yeah, it, oh God, Paddington too. Oh, yeah, please, that unbelievable. No, I did not see that multiple times. I, I think the the film I've seen the most in theaters was Lost Boys, because of the, that initial experience as as this '80s kid going in and getting blown away by. Oh, talk about one of the best soundtracks of all time. I mean, Lost Boys. That I had the CD for, not the cassette. I had the CD for Lost Boys. And between listening to that CD back forth, back forth, and then going to see the film so many times that summer, right? Uh, and the other one would be Cocktail. Same time period. I was a kid. We were bored. You know, it's summertime. You're like, let's go to the movies and let's go see something. And you know, let's go see Cocktail again. I took multiple dates to see Cocktail. It was the ultimate date film. Sure. <laughs> and this was in Columbus? Yes, Ohio? it was. Okay. Columbus, Ohio. Uh, those are probably the two. And they each one probably six times. 
Um, even though I, I don't like to admit I have seen Firestarter now five times, the most recent one. Because it's 90 minutes long and there was nothing else to see and I was bored and I'm five minutes from the, from the theater. <laughs> That's why I went to see it five times. But I think, you know what, really the, the brevity of a film adds to its rewatchability. Because if, if you're talking about a three-hour film, then you you have to commit three hours to that, right? That's a, that's a major time commitment. Conversely, if a movie's 85, 90, 95 minutes, you, it's, hey, you can watch it twice in the time it takes to watch the other movie once. And you know, one of my, again, a film that, oh, I absolutely adore and from a filmmaker that I think is going to really bring stuff that we, we is going to be one of our major, major filmmakers in years to come is, uh, is Rose Glass. I mean, you, you you look at at Saint Maud. Saint Maud is talk about a film that you get blown away by the direction and the choices and the talent behind the the screen. Uh, that that is that is a film that uh, is is again rewatchable for that length as well. It's an 85, 90 minute movie. I think that more filmmakers need to remember that less is more. Less is more is such an important thing. Um, if you can say something tighter, do it. If you can make a movie tighter almost all the time, do it. Look at The Irishman. Three and a half hours, right? And now Netflix is, has this whole thing about, you know, it was a vanity project. I think someone actually added that quote to what Netflix said. But, but when you watch Irishman or you watch a lot of things that come out of Netflix, you are looking at a film that doesn't have the studio constraints that are needed put upon it. And when I say that, you go back to the 80s, 90s, 2000s, studios had more control over their films. They said, this is, the studio head would say, hey, listen, your film is going to come in at 140. You're going to come in at 90, 150 max. Now we're bleeding into 220, 230, 245. And unless it's necessary, vital to your film, less is more. Almost always. Uh, so many films that I see, you, you say, there's a better version here. If you would have taken things out, not added, you had the opportunity to make this really, well, certainly a better film, and you left more in this to lessen its overall quality. And I think that, that gets back to the director. You have to have somebody who you trust to watch your projects and say, listen, I like what I see, but I think you need to do this, this, and this. And I think there's not enough of that in Hollywood. And I know some creatives will think, oh man, that is sacrilegious what you're saying. But if it makes your project better, then you should be listening to those people who hopefully have a very good track record at saying, this is what I think we'll do, we can do to improve your film. Okay, so taking the less is more analogy, yep. let's look at the social network and yep. let's look at the dialogue. Mm -hmm. So the dialogue was just right, you think? Sorkin's screenplay is uh, again. Social Network is there's. It's a flawless film. It's uh, which is those don't come along often. Okay, I don't care what film, even Parasite. I've got which I of recent films, which I think is again a masterpiece. I think there's a there's a couple things that I would change. Drive is a film that I oh god, I love Drive. Uh, I've seen Drive. I probably have seen Drive forty times. I that's a film that. 
really, it speaks to me as an LA person for sure. Forty? Um, oh yeah, oh yeah. I've watched that. I just watch it on a loop. It's a background. It's one of those films you put on in the background, right? And you just have, and it just makes you feel. Even though Drive, trust me, depressing film, but the feels, the score. Martinez's score in Drive is just something I can listen to. It's on my, it's on my iPod, on my, on my phone. I listen to that thing all the time. Um, it just takes me to a space that is that film, and I'll never forget. It's another cinematic first that I'll never forget. The first watching of Drive in a press screening, I went, "Oh my god, this is Refn! Wow!" Uh, and again, it speaks to the love of Los Angeles, and I think he nails it. The feels of that film, um, but but when you look at at, at these at, at social network, and you're talking about a film that that uh, again is perfect. I think it, this from the screenplay to the. Uh, again, score, screenplay, direction, uh, acting, every single element of that film is perfect. So there's not one thing I would change about a film. That's, uh, name a film I could tell you one thing we could change about. For Drive, very easy. For Drive, I think the number one thing I would change with that film is in the elevator head stomping scene where he is, he's in there with, uh, Gosling's in there with Mulligan. They're in the elevator. You got the bad guy there and he's going to do something terrible to him. He starts stomping the guy's head in. And, and we get it. He's absolutely obliterating this guy as he's down on the ground, and you don't see it, right? You don't see it. So Refn, at the very end, the last shot, boom, you actually see his foot go through the head, right? Like smashing a pumpkin. I think if you do not show that and you leave it up here, right, it's stronger. So restraint is often stronger than showing it. Look at Jaws. Go back to Jaws, right? We didn't see. It was all in your head. If the terror is in your head, if the horror is there, then it's stronger than actually seeing it. Um, I'm not saying that's universally true, but I think in cases like Drive and the elevator scene, no question that if Refn would have held off on that instead, pulled back and had left it up here, it's a better film. So these are little things, but they matter. I mean, ultimately, I would love to be like a test screener of one. Show me your movie. And I, trust me, I'd have no problem doing this. Refn would be here. And I'd say, listen, man, film is, you gotta be, it's just such a film. But, but, you, the, the elevator scene, we gotta get rid of it. We gotta get rid of the head stomping. And, and that's what we need. We need more of somebody who has the ability to judge in a, and probably, okay, listen, someone could say I'm wrong about that. That's fine. But I think after watching enough films and really, getting, dialing in the skill of evaluation of a film, you become very aware of what works and what doesn't work. And I think that is a very important skill to have on a studio level because therefore you could go in and say, for any film and say, I, 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 I know what I'm saying here. I, th I think we can make this film better by doing this, this, and this. And I think we need more of that. Beyond great direction, what mm -hmm. makes a film amazing? Um, I think putting you in a world, creating a world that you escape into, um, that you are fully immersed in, that is, um, it's an experience that, again, takes you out of your everyday and puts you only into this, it could be anything, it could be modern day, it could be past, it could be sci-fi, it could be horror, it doesn't matter what the genre is, you're creating this full fully alive world that these characters live in. And if you're able to do that, I think that creating that setting, that that is so, it's crucial to a film. It sounds obvious, right? But not every film is able to do that. But the best films are the ones that literally place you in that location with those characters. 
And that is, again, uh, essential. I mean, it is absolutely one of the key things that is needed to be done by any director, filmmaker, is to make you be part of that world. And it sounds easy, but it's not. And not every film was able to do that. So with Blade Runner 82, well, that world was was just like something... Full, fully realized. Right, with the I mean, soundtrack. Yeah, and, and again, think of the time, right? So you go back and that's uh, 10, 20, 40 years now, is that right? Uh, 40 years ago-ish, uh, you're talking about, uh, you know, ahead of its time in so many ways, uh, but the production design on that film, um, just the sets that were created, I think it's very important to have as much real, actual tangible things in your film versus everything being CGI, right? We get blinded by CGI films these days. Just so much of it, like Doctor Strange 2, Multiverse of Madness. Uh, you're looking at a film that has so much CGI from that opening scene. It's just like, I am watching characters in front of a green screen. You literally can see the green screen. In your head, you just like, they're in front of a green screen. I think there's so much power in actually putting those characters in an environment, a true, real environment, and that's one of the reasons Dune succeeds so well, is because the production design of that film is authentically, it's real, it is tangible, it is not CGI. There's CGI in the film, we know that, but more often than not, practical sets are where these actors are existing. And that is part of the world building. That's part of the production design of any film. I mean, one of the best films I saw from last year, Nightmare Alley. Nightmare Alley, uh, Del Toro's Nightmare Alley is such an underrated film. And, and one of the reasons is that production design. You know, creating not just the carnival world, but also the noir world uh, of, of New York in the 30s. Uh, or Chicago, wherever the city was, um, you know, creating that world, the world building is just, is, is everything to a film. And uh, it's, it's, it's skill, again, that not every filmmaker has. So I think that's, if you ask me, direction very clearly, but it all still comes back to direction, doesn't it? I mean, when you talk about world building, it's the director's job to build the world. So that's why I say that the director's everything. I mean, sure, yeah, a script's important, <laughs> but, but the director's skill and his artistic vision is by far, to me, the number one skill that you need to have as a filmmaker. What do you love about Marvel movies? I love the fact that everybody loves them. <laughs> I, I, there's something that is absolutely to be cherished, I think, when we have something that people like. It, 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 we need more of that. And I think Marvel movies and DCEU movies are really those things that um, get people excited. I mean, I, I don't get as excited for Marvel movies as a lot of people do, but but I understand their value. And I think that there's a tremendous value. I mean, when Scorsese says the things he says, and I know people say, hey, it's not cinema and this and that. Uh, there's so many things that are cinema. There's two, There's we can't define cinema as one thing, right? It's only this, it's only a small art house film. Um, no, it's it's not. It can it can be a Marvel film, it, as long as um, it again. I still I still want to see a very singular directorial artistic vision on the film, and I think that's where the Marvel films sometimes lose their value. Is when I watch when you have Chloe Zhao coming in and doing Eternals, and when you watch Eternals and having obviously recently seen Nomadland and then The Writer, I mean The Writer, uh, one of my favorite films of the past decade. Uh, when you look at what she, her talent and what she does, and then when you watch Eternals, you don't see 
this same, you can see that someone came in and said, listen, we love what you're doing, but we're gonna, we're, we need to put this in the Marvel world so we can't let you go full Chloe. We can't let you go full, uh, you know, whoever, even Raimi recently. I think when you watch Multiverse of Madness, you see some parts that are Sam Raimi, but then you see other parts that aren't. You see other parts that almost feel like it's from someone else. And I think that's the challenge, and those are the things that for me are the, the hardest thing for a Marvel movie is I wish that Marvel would allow their directors to really impart their vision, their individual singular vision on a film. And, and Eternals is, is the perfect example of that. It just, you don't see Chloe like you do in Nomadland, the writer. You don't see that organic filmmaker. Um, you just, you see it so sparingly in the film that you wonder where she disappears to, right, in the process of the filmmaking. And I think that's the challenge as a filmmaker when you step into certainly an MCU film. I think Warner Brothers does a much better job of allowing their directors a carte blanche in what they're going to do. You look at Joker and what Todd Phillips did with that film. Would Marvel ever allow that? No, there's no chance. Marvel would never. Kevin Feige would never let them make a film like Joker. If Joker were in the Marvel Universe and Todd Phillips said, hey, I want to make this super dark, king of comedy meets taxi driver version of Joker, Kevin Feige would say, no, no way in hell. Warner Brothers said, yes. I think Marvel would be better served if it allowed its directors to do what Todd Phillips did with Joker, to go all out and let that director really go after it. Um, and I think that's the challenge. I think as a filmmaker, when you go work for, for Marvel, you know that you're going to be lost. Uh, you, you, at least you better be aware of it now from watching Eternals, go back, Mar multiple, uh, Doctor Strange 2. When you're a filmmaker and you go in and you, you look at, at uh, what Marvel does with their films, you don't see the director as often. And I think that that is, I think going forward, if I was a director, who really wanted to have my vision of a film up on the screen, I don't think I would work for Marvel because I think they're going to dampen your impact immeasurably. So you see the executive's note when you watch no question. a Marvel film? Oh, yeah. When, when you, you, you see, uh, I, listen, Marvel is a, is a, Listen, they're the five billion pound gorilla when it comes to, to cinema these days. And Kevin Feige obviously has a very specific plan that is working for them largely. But as we get here into phase four, you're seeing some films like Eternals, even Strange. Let's hope that Thor Love and Thunder is, is stronger. I think that it's interesting as I say all that, I feel like Taika Waititi is given more artistic freedom with his visions of those Thor films than a lot of the filmmakers, but he's earned that too. You gotta remember, obviously this is now going to be his third or is it second? Third or third? He's gonna be, he's he's been in the system, so I think he's earned more trust. But um but I think that that when you look at these Marvel films, I think you absolutely see the studio notes and versus the true full wattage director artistic vision that you see in a lot of these directors other films is there a comic book character that was either made better or made worse in the film version 
So either way, did the the, the comic book version was was one thing, yep. and then the film became the. It comes thing. down to two performances for me. The two performances, um, it's really about the actor and the role. The, there's there's a lot that have been nailed. I think that's true, but I think there's two without question. Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man, and Hugh Jackman as Wolverine. Those are two performances as those comic book characters that frankly can never be recast. I don't, I don't think there's a way that you could ever have someone else play either Iron Man or Wolverine and get away with it because they have cemented their legacy as just iconic. What they've done with those characters, uh, I would never want to try to step into those shoes because it's, it's virtually impossible. And I think those two in particular are the absolute best of the best. Um, that said, you know, you go back and look at even, look at Joker. I mean, you look at all the different ver you go Heath Ledger, um, Heath Ledger Joker. You go obviously Joaquin Phoenix Joker. Um, you're, you're looking at two great Jokers. Uh, so there's you can I think it depends on the character. Um, but at this point, again, with with let's say both Wolverine and Iron Man. Um, we've seen so much of Robert Downey Jr. a decade plus going back to you know truly Marvel's first film in Iron Man um, that it's just a legacy that uh, will never go no one will ever touch that I mean he is I think look at look at this way Robert Downey Jr.'s performance as Iron Man elevated Iron Man from a mid Marvel character right let's just say mid to truly the Mount Rushmore of Marvel characters, I mean, you, you, or comic book heroes in general, comic book characters. You're talking about Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, and Iron Man. Those are my four. Wonder Woman, five. Okay, five on the thing, right? And and obviously, Gal's done a tremendous job. Even though Wonder Woman '84, oh, what a horrible film. Uh, but she's great. The casting's right. Um, but but I think that that the way that Robert Downey Jr. elevated Iron Man to this character that really again was a mid Marvel character that's Robert Downey Jr. it's all him if you put someone else in that film do we even have the MCU like we we did I don't know the answer to that if someone else plays Iron Man less iconically than Robert Downey Jr. did from the original all the way through I don't think it's the same legacy I don't I don't see how it's possible he's so he was born to be Iron Man even though I think he's great at everything he does and he really needs to be working in independent film. If I was Robert Downey Jr.'s agent, I'd be like, listen, man, you need to be working with A24, you need to be working with Neon, make some small independent film. He's a tremendous actor. I think people forget that about Robert Downey Jr. Um, tremendously smart guy, too, if you listen to interviews from him. God, brilliant man. Um, but but the, I think people lose the fact that that he is I think he's he might be the singular reason why Marvel is the way is what it is Robert Downey Jr. so he took sort of a mid-tier comic book character yep. and made it oh, yeah. top shelf no question I mean again Iron Man was just, no one back in even let's go back to the mid-2000s uh, before Iron Man and you say name uh, comic book characters people would not throw out Iron Man no way they would throw out Hulk obviously Spider-Man Batman the, the traditional Superman no one would say Iron Man. Now they would. Now, now you would. And I think that's going to be the challenge going forward too, because now that he's gone, and I, I, by the way, do not bring that character back. Okay, you, I, as as tempting as it is, as much trouble as you get into, let's just assume that the MCU starts to really go on a downslide. Do not ever bring him back. I don't care if it not in the multiverse, nothing. That's a perfect ending to a to a character, and in you're going to tarnish the legacy. And I think that will be a challenge because ultimately. If if you struggle, you're like, well, how can we get everyone back? Well, let's bring back Robert Downey Jr. Um, 
I'm sure he'd do it for the right amount of money. <laughs> he made so much cash playing that character. But I think artistically, it's the wrong choice. And for legacy, it's the wrong choice. So I hope it doesn't happen. Why do you think comic book movies dominate the box office? <sighs> That's good. Um, I think ultimately films are about accessibility, certainly for audience. And the larger that your pie chart is for the given film, Marvel obviously dominates like almost the entire pie of, of available moviegoers, right? So you're looking at a four quad film, which means young, old, male, female, everybody's in, right? Families especially. So that's the reason Marvel is so successful is obviously it's four quad. Obviously, you're talking about a film that appeals to families, superheroes, escapism. It's got all these things going for it that it's very easy to understand why it's successful. That said, uh, after watching Multiverse of Madness and going back to Eternals, you're, you're looking at Marvel being in a spot where they really need Thor Love and Thunder to be not good. They need it to be borderline great or better because you're at a spot where I think people are starting to go. I mean, you've, you've seen the, the chatter on social media. People are saying, I'm kind of over comic book movies. I'm not as excited now as I was. And I think that's the challenge is how do we recreate, how do we get that going again? And um, for me, again, the answer is very simple is allow these directors to make the film they want to make without the overriding studio notes slash MCU, Kevin Feige saying, this is what we're doing. Trust in your filmmaker to deliver something that will re-energize the fan base. And when you look at Joker and Todd Phillips, granted, it's completely apart from the DCEU, but either way, it's still connected. And look what that film did, a billion worldwide, a film that people were like, what are we doing with an R-rated CBM? And it turns out to be obviously an Oscars player, Oscars winner, and and a film that really re-energized, I think, DC, even if it's disconnected. But why? Because they allowed the director to make the film that he wanted to make. And most studios wouldn't do that. Warner Brothers get so much crap for you know what happened with Zack Snyder. And I understand things happen. Nothing's perfect in the studio world. But you have to give Warner Brothers the credit they are due for taking chances. And we need more studios to take chances. We lost Fox, as you guys know. You know, 20th Century is now part of Disney. Fox was kind of doing their own thing, Deadpool. And, and now that that's gone, you're, you lost an entire studio that used to take chances. Like Fox did a great job of doing that. Um, and now that's under the Disney umbrella, we'll see what happens. I know they're going to make a Deadpool 3. Will it be in the same irreverent, super R, hard R, uh, CBM that we've expected? I think the answer is yes, because you can't do that any other way. But studios taking chances, we need more of that. And Warner Brothers does that. Four quad, you said it's young, old. So four quad, so yeah, four quad film is, is, is a film that appeals basically to everybody, right? So when you talk about a four quad film, you're talking about something that when you look at the movie going pie, available audience of this pie chart, you're talking about pretty much the entire pie chart filled in with one giant slice of the movie going public that will go see your film, and you're talking about young, old, uh, male, female, it's everybody, right? So, so that's those are Marvel films. That's Jurassic World Dominion. That's um, you know, it's not every film certainly, but the films, those are the films that are going to do the best at the box office. Maverick, Top Gun Maverick is a four quad film, even though it probably is a little bit lesser on the younger, 
But you know, the screening I went to, to show you how four quad this is, I sit down last Thursday when the film opens. Here I am at Top Gun Maverick. I sit down on my seat, four o'clock screening on a Thursday. On my right is a woman uh, that's probably in her mid 80s. And on my left, a family <laughs> with two young kids under the age of five. So you've got five to 85, right? And someone in the middle right there. <laughs> and it's just like, this is, this is the whole pie. This is the four quad. And you see it in action. And uh, not every film is going to be that way. But, but Marvel is. And, uh, and most summer films are going to be four quad because they know the kids are out of school. Pixar? So, yeah, Pixar. Certainly. Lightyear. Uh, the, Pixar would be a four quad film. Um, you know, any, any of those. Usually, tra- traditionally, you're going to see those at, at Christmas. You're going to see them at, over the summer when you know you have those kids available to you all day for the matinees and all that stuff. But, but yeah, those are the films that are going to do the best. I mean, A24, uh, first of all, one thing you're always going to get with A24 is a great direction. You're going to get a great directorial effort out of it. I don't think I can name one A24 film that does not have very distinct, strong direction. Now, the problem for a lot of the movie going public is that A24 films tend to be for a much smaller slice of the cinematic pie. So if you try to go see an A24 film and you're expecting something that is accessible or even remotely mainstream accessible, it's probably not going to happen that often. Um, and I think that's the, the, the challenge that the average moviegoer has sitting through an A24 film. That said, they're invaluable. I mean, good Lord. Look at all the films that A24 has given us over the years. You're talking about really the indie distributor of note, right, uh, of of. All, maybe all time. I mean, you got Sony Pictures Classic in there. You've got IFC. You've got Neon now coming up, obviously. But but A twenty four, what they've done since you know twenty eleven to now, they've created a brand that's it's basically it's a cult. I mean, people love A twenty four, and and there's a reason because you're going to get a very artistic film every single time. Did you see The Revenant? Yes. How did you like it? I don't think it's Inuritu, one of his best films. I, I think that when you look at at The Revenant, for me, and you look at you look at Leo DiCaprio, one of our truly most talented actors that we have today. I think that he, in every performance, is going to be exceptional or better. And when you look at that being his Oscar win, you're like, mm, that's a shame because it's the Wolf of Wall Street. I mean, if you ask me what's the best Leo performance, it's Wolf of Wall Street. It's not Revenant. Um, and that's the the thing. Sometimes when when uh, when we have those discussions about what was the best performance, and it turns out that I don't even think the Revenant was his best performance. Let's say it's a bad one, but it's like that's the one that we're going to pick for the Oscar. Um, Blood Diamond. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, it's listen, you, you could name so many, right? Uh, but I mean, Wolf of Wall Street again. There's pretty much a perfect film for me. A three hour film that is literally one of the funniest films. What a comedy, uh, and yet so pointed about all its points about the excesses of the rich but but when you look at the revenant i just remember seeing that film one of the first screenings of it and uh, it, the weird thing is when you go to see a film like the revenant and you come out and everyone is raving oh this is the best film i've ever seen and you go did we watch the same film because that happens and you you go are they right or am i right you start to doubt yourself i go back to the Five Bloods. The Five Bloods was a film that I watched on a screener that was right in the middle of the pandemic, very early on. And Netflix had these huge hopes. Spike Lee, Black Klansman. Oh man, what a film! I mean, you want to talk about recent Spike Lee films? Black Klansman's a million times better than The Five Bloods. But I remember reading the initial 
uh, thoughts, the social reactions to the five bloods, the morning I, the, the embargo broke and I had my tweet ready to go. <laughs> and I looked and I go, what the hell am I looking at? Like I looked at my tweet and then I looked at what I'm reading. I'm like, masterpiece, this movie's forgettable. Masterpiece, what am I? I said, okay. I sat there for a moment with my draft tweet of the review of Defy Bloods. So, and I said, do I want to send this? Am I going to get, like, what's going to happen with this? So I go, beep, sent. And then, of course, people, oh, look at this. He doesn't know what he's talking about. But here's the thing. Ultimately, what happened with that film? Was it a huge Oscar success? No. Defy Bloods wasn't. You have to stay true to your initial thoughts on a film and not be persuaded to think otherwise. And that's that's hard because in there's people that are going to come after you and say, you're wrong. I'm not a huge fan of everything everywhere all at once. And I have my reasons. I think it's excessive. I think it's repetitive. I think it's overlong. There are people who think it's the best movie ever made or up there. Okay, And you have to stay true to what you believe. And as a film critic, evaluator, anybody, Whatever your opinion of a film is, is your individual subjective opinion. Uh, that said, if you look over the track record of, of somebody, and I think hopefully this is something I've earned over the 10 plus years I've been doing this, is you have a track record. Did this person, which, which side of the coin were they on on this film? Were they on the up, down? And, and if you look over the track record of your evaluations, your critiques of films, if they are largely where everyone kind of lines up on it, not that you're trying to do that, but if you are, then then I think that's that's key too. Because if you're always on one side that's completely different from everybody else, that's different. But I think the other challenge is a lot of people want to, again, like a Spike Lee with Defy Bloods, you, you'd say, this is Spike Lee, so it's gotta be good. No, why? Why? Just because it's Spike Lee? Just because it's Director, whoever, name any director, Nolan, Fincher, anyone currently working today, um, any director, uh, you have to look at that individual film. The past does not indicate the future. You can't go say this is because every film they ever made was good, this one is. And I think Defy Blood is a great example of that. It's, it's not a great Spike Lee film. And I stayed true to my thoughts and I think over time I've been vindicated. <laughs> well, I think we can get bullied into saying, oh. you know, oh, you didn't like like the uh, following versus Inception. Yep, I like smaller films, but but oh, it, it's not something that you want to raise your hand really and and pronounce to the film community. Well, I, you you do. You're going to get bullied. I mean, even everything everywhere. I uh, I sent a tweet after I saw it. Uh, I'd heard it was just so great. Everything everywhere all at once, and then I I sit through and I'm like, man, this is extremely repetitive at the end. Um, they are bashing you over the head with the same joke, the same thoughts. Uh, almost an, it, it's just it's it's too much. It is an overload on the back end of that film. And I really, it's funny. That's a film. Talk about a film I turned against. It was a film I felt great about. Everything everywhere. I was like, I like this film. And then, oh man, it's the diminishing returns. And I started to go really down on that. But I sent a tweet out saying, I think this is. Uh, I want to start a, a a new group called. Everything everywhere all at once is overrated, but I'm afraid no one will join me because they're afraid to admit it. Well, it turns out one of the Daniels jumped on and said, you know, snarkily, funnily, oh, I agree with you. We agree. It's not a good film. I'm like, okay. But what's interesting is after that whole exchange, I didn't think anything. I said, I'm not going to change. I'm not going to delete the tweet. This is what I believe. What the director says, you know, did I anger the director? I don't know. Uh, but, but, 
You have to be strong in your convictions, fearless, and not worry about what other people think of you. You know, I go back to Siskel and Ebert, which I grew up with watching that show at the movies. Uh, you know, every Sunday on PBS, I'd watch that show. And Gene Siskel is my film critic hero of all time. I mean, I, I think that he, his mind and how he evaluated films, watching him and Ebert go back, but especially Siskel, I would listen to that man talk and I'd say, what a smart film person. I want to be like Gene Siskel one day. And one thing that he was was very adamant about sticking to your original thoughts on something, never wavering. And they have a great exchange uh, between the two of them where he talks about the death of a critic. So the death of a critic is wanting to be light, wanting to fit in, wanting to be part of the group. Uh, being afraid of saying what you believe to be your experience with this film. And I think a lot of critics have an issue with that because they don't want to stand out. They're going to be like, whoa, wow, you're the guy who didn't like everything everywhere all at once. Yes, I am. And I have my very specific reasons why. And I'm not going to be bullied off of that platform. And that takes... Uh, you, you've got to be strong. You've got to be fearless and go, I don't even care. You just mute the replies on Twitter. <laughs> I've done that plenty of times. Well, a lot of film, music, art people are on the fringes anyway. So yep. we're kind of used to it. Yeah. Maybe that's how we were in high school. Yep. So, okay, great. That's how it is now. 100% how I was. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I had an exchange with my friends last, last night um, and we were at the Hustle premiere and he said, I think a lot of people on Twitter, they, they, they think you're like the bad guy, the film film Twitter bad guy because you're like that mean jock from high school. And I'm like, that is so funny to me as you say that because I was a nerd. I was a full-on geek, okay? I you go back to Anthony Michael Hall and 16 Candles. That's who I was, okay? Kind of in between. Not really cool and not really totally a nerd, but definitely not with the cool jock kids. And, but I think that's the power of, of, I think that's who I am. That's your power is that you're not really one of anything. You kind of can belong to any group. And I think we need to do more of that is, is to, to, to be in the same with films. Do not just ingest Marvel product. Do not just ingest four quad films. Go out and look for that tiny film that will move you, that gets you excited about cinema again. I go back to last year. A very small film from Tim Sutton, Funny Face. Oh, I mean, that is a film that I have watched that film. I have the Vimeo link to that, and I have absolutely exhausted the Vimeo views on that. I have watched it so much because the mood of that film and the direction, and it's something I would have never watched. And the, and the studio said, hey, will you watch this movie? We believe in this film. It was Gravitas Ventures. And I go, yeah, it was, it was like during, they have nothing else coming out. And I said, let's see this. I'm so glad I hit play on that because that was not theatrical. I had to watch a screener. But that's what you're looking for. When I watch Funny Face, when I watch St. Maud, when I go to We the Animals, I'm seeing recent films that are tiny films. Well, St. Maud's obviously A24, but We the Animals. These are films that when you watch them, like, wow, this is what I love. And you know it when you see it. It's just the artistic quality of the film is so high. And, and those, are, those are the things. I mean, just, just vary your cinematic diet. Do not just take in one kind of film. See as much as possible. And, uh, and stick to your guns, ultimately. Stick to your guns or whatever you think and whatever you believe in, champion. Okay, so that being said, you wanting to stay true to what you believe in, mm -hmm. not trying to please other people and say, yep. okay, I like this. Do you listen to film critics and base what you see? No, you don't, okay. Never. In fact, I don't want to. I don't want to know. Um, 
a lot of times we're lucky enough to have seen one of the first screenings, so there's not a lot of reaction out there. So we'll see, you know, Dominion. I see Jurassic World Dominion on Monday night. It comes out Thursday, so I'll have I'll see it where there's really not a lot of reaction about it. So my my reaction to it will be all I have. I don't have anything else to base it on. I don't want to. In fact, when it, when there's a film that's already debuted, let's say at Sundance, I didn't go. Tell your ride, uh, Venice, any film festival you name can. I, I'm gonna not like Elvis is a great example. Comes out here at the end of the month. I don't want to know about Elvis. I've heard Austin Butler's amazing. You can tell from the from the trailers that he nailed this. But I don't want to know anything else because I don't want to have my opinion altered by someone else's opinion. So I try to avoid it as much as possible. It's weird to me that I hear there are people, and I've seen this. I'm not gonna name names. There are people who in social reactions coming out of a screening, like say at Sundance, have actually looked at others and you can very clearly tell they cherry pick things and put it cobbled together and put their own reaction together. If you aren't able to come up with your own thoughts about a film that are absolutely organic with you and not originating from someone else, then you shouldn't be doing this. You should only care about your specific reaction to a film. I don't ever want to be influenced by somebody else. And that comes back to being strong in what you believe in and knowing, trusting your instincts. So same thing with music. If we go back to, let's say, the 80s or yep. whatever, and, you know, whatever hit boy band of the, of yep. the 80s, you know, just, just being strong oh, in the fact that I, I'm sorry, I can't, you know, we, <laughs> we've a, come up with a lot of names, I'm sure, but, you know. Guilty pleasure. Sure, but but something that's on the fringes and yep. being okay. I'm a oh. fringe person, oh. and I'm, I own it. Oh God! I'm yeah. flying my freak flag, and oh, I don't care. One hundred percent, and that's part that that's part of the fun. I mean, like I say, when I was a kid, I'd go I'd go to the record store, and I'd say they'd have the top forty singles sitting there, and I would look at number one, and I go, Nah, that's I heard that a million times. Let's go down to number forty, and I let's take home number forty because I haven't heard that. And I was always looking for the more obscure thing. And I think that's even for me nowadays when I go, well, I really want to watch things that haven't gotten the attention they deserve ultimately. Um, they're rare. I mean, let's be honest. Not every small film is worthy of attention. Certainly not every large film. But the ones that are, I think it's our job to get the films that deserve attention, that are smaller and not receiving any oxygen, pump them up. Let's get those. Let's give them a runway. Um, people have sent me tweets saying, hey, Eric, I think your, your service is really valuable when you recommend something that I didn't even know about. And I think that's the power of, of what we do is being able to bring eyes to something that perhaps would not have them without you saying that this is something you need to put on your radar. Okay, so you're not promoting the soundtrack from Frozen. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's no way in hell. No way to, but, but, you know, as I say that, you can come out of Top Gun Maverick and have the same reaction, which is completely populist. Everyone, you know, as, as American apple pie filmmaking as it gets, but it still is a great film in what it's doing. And I think, so you can't just say because it's big means it's bad. Um, so you have to watch that too. I think a lot of people are like, well, if it's not some small indie, then I don't, it doesn't have any value. I'm like, well, let's try to just have a film being a film, period. Period. Regardless of budget, regardless of studio, it, it, whoever's directing, whoever's in, whoever's in it, the film has value as a film. Um, that's it. That's You have to look at everything that way. We're hoping to play a little game okay. here. We have five movie titles. Yep. We're curious 
First off, which movie title do you think is fake? Well, I know Val's real. I know Centigrade's real. Um, I would say Leave a Message After the Tone would be my guess because it's such a goof title. Uh, but then again, knowing really small indie film, um, I'm probably going to go with... No, nah, I'm going to stick with that. Although my second choice would be Blood from Stone. Okay. 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 And then what do you think the genre is for each of these films? Okay. Well, I know, obviously, I know Val. Val is, is, is a documentary. Centigrade, I have seen. It's an IFC film. It is about a man stuck in his car with, I believe, his wife or girlfriend. And she... Uh, he he dies and then she, it's just a real depressing film. But it's I've seen Centigrade. He's stuck in a car and it's super cold outside. They're like in the middle of a snowstorm. Um, Blood from Stone would clearly be a drama. Not familiar. Leave a message after the tone has got to be a comedy if it's real. And then All Roads to Perla, I would assume is a drama. I am not these three. I got these two. These three, I'm uh, failing. Okay. Uh, of these five titles, yep. which would you want to see? And, and may I just interject that yep. Val is actually not a documentary. So... Well, I thought Val was. The Val Kilmer one? It's a, well, the uh, one we're thinking of is not. I'm giving... You know what? I'm jumping in. Okay. So, okay. so which of these five titles would you want to see? If I just had to go see a movie? Right. Okay. If I had to pick one of these five to go, okay, I want to go see a movie. I would go with... Centigrade. Even though I know the film and I wasn't huge on the film, I would go with Centigrade because I think that um, I think that that's the most interesting title to me. It, it stirs my interest. Okay. And if we were going to pick, let's say, since since you know Centigrade, we'll, yep. we'll leave that one. If you were going to pick one of these titles mm -hmm. to be the title of your next movie, okay. and you're coming in pitching an executive. Yep. What would you tell them the plot? Would be a. Oh, God. This, to is, use the this is fun. I like four. It. For each, all oh, the other four? Oh. Okay. So, Blood from Stone. Okay. So, Blood from Stone would be about a, a depressed actor who's been working in, in Hollywood as an extra for so many years. By the way, I really do want to write the script. So, this, I wouldn't call it Blood from Stone, but I'm trying to work my script in my head into this. Struggling actor who's been at it. He's been an extra for, you know, 20 plus years. And, and he just, it's, by the way, super depressing film because ultimately he doesn't make it. But that's, I think, again, what we talked about earlier is that's the beauty of, of, of a good film is it doesn't have to wrap up perfectly. So he's trying to get blood from a stone, which is never going to happen for him in Hollywood. So that's my, that's my pitch for blood from stone. Um, leave a message after the tone would be a goofball zany comedy um, set in 1985 where the... Uh, female lead uh, heads out for the night and she has on her answer machine leave a message from the tone and a very important call from somebody from from what she's again let's make her an actress again it's Hollywood she's waiting for this call that she's been waiting for to make or break her career and it turns out that she accidentally erases the tape and hilarity ensues as as people is this as she tries to figure out how do I get back into this after erasing the message, um, all roads to Perla. Uh, let's make this a dark horror film, and we'll, we'll have the a house in the middle of nowhere, and we'll call it Perla. And every road in the town leads to this house in Perla, and and 
you have multiple people coming from different places to converge on the house in Perla because all roads lead there. And then we get into a knives out kind of situation. Um, Val, uh, obviously I'd make a movie about Val Kilmer. No, I, <laughs> if we can't do that, uh, I would say Val would be uh, a, a female led movie that is about an actress. I keep going back. <laughs> Let's make Val a teacher. Val is a teacher and her everyday existence dealing with her fourth grade students. And just the simple, basic cinema verite of her life uh, as a fourth grade teacher. Almost like a documentary. Okay. And absolutely an awards film. Uh, right, right. It's, it, it checks all the boxes. Okay, we'll go through the titles here. Great job, by the way. I, I love the... the <laughs> some of it, it seemed like you were intuitively picking up on it. So, number one, Blood from Stone is a real film. Okay. Uh, we interviewed the filmmaker, Jeff Ryan. Great guy. Um, it's a thriller vampire movie. The old era of vampires has been forced into darkness, yet they are drawn to the dawning of a new era for themselves with a longing to be free of their savage curse. Okay, and so it's um, Lost Boys. Uh, sort of in <laughs> Vegas, but they are yeah they're 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 at a casino. Okay, it's, okay, okay. Yeah, uh, I don't know if it's actually Vegas. I think it's somewhere else in, in Nevada. Uh, number two, leave a message after the tone. Well, that's Karen's cheesy title. So you were right about that, and it probably would be an '80s type of a thing. Yes, where she goes out for the night, right. and then the thing is erased, and how does she get it back? There, right. So you. Perfect. I like it. I love it. It's great. Uh, number three is uh, Val is a real movie, but this is a horror thriller comedy, and it's uh, uh, co-written by Aaron Fradkin and Victoria Fratz, both of whom we've interviewed. Great people. Um, it's a criminal on the run breaks into the home of a high-class escort, mm. only to realize nothing is as it seems. Okay. So kind of you had talked about an actress. Yep. You know. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. Number four. All Roads to Perla. Yep. Uh, that's a real film. Crime, drama, thriller. And a great individual, his name is Van uh, Titevong. Titevong? Sorry, I hope I said it right. Sorry, Van. Uh, I love you. Uh, so a Texas town awakes when a high school wrestler gets entangled with a drifter and her psychopathic lover. Okay. Lives then intertween and spiral violently out of control once he becomes her escort driver. Okay. Yeah, so. There we go. <laughs> I don't know if you were expecting it, but it, it's actually a fantastic film cool. and um, beautifully shot. Oh, well, you have me right there. So you okay, yeah, so I, I highly recommend yeah, it. Cinematography, we're there. Right, right, yeah. right. Uh, and then Centigrade, you know. Yep. Um, it's Brendan Walsh, great guy. We've interviewed him. Thriller mm -hmm. drama. A married couple finds themselves trapped in their frozen vehicle after a blizzard and struggle to survive among, uh, amid plunging temperatures and unforeseenable obstacles. One for five. Great, yes. Yeah, 20%. So, yeah, so you knew centigrade, so. <laughs> How many Oscars has Quentin Tarantino won for Best Director? Oh, that's a great question. I, sh I should absolutely have this down. I can say, okay, without answering the question, as I spin out, Quentin Tarantino, there's an example of a, of a director who is very singular with his vision and knows exactly what he wants to give you as an audience he's he wants to, he's going to give you the film that he has in his head is going to be the product and that's the challenge for filmmakers is what's in the head doesn't always come out into the end product and i think tarantino maximizes his vision to actual completion product 
maybe better than any director. I think Villeneuve is up there, uh, but Tarantino is one for sure. And certainly as a director-writer, I don't know if there's a better combination. Do you know how many Oscars he's won for Best Director? Well, I okay, I don't have the exact. I'm going to throw a number out and say, uh, he, well, obviously we know that he was not happy with Bong winning instead of him. That's an interesting story, by the way. I, we can get into that or not, but there's a very interesting story with Quentin Tarantino and Bong. Very interesting that I, I've, I've never told. Well, first of all, Tarantino would probably come after me if I told it, but it, it's a good one. Um, but I, okay, for me, I can say this. He should have won for Django Unchained. He did not win for Django Unchained. He should have won. I lo- Django Unchained is one of my favorite Tarantino movies. Um, I'm going to say he has, uh, I, the easy, the thing for me is I really should know is I, I would say it's zero, but I'm going to say one. Your first, your intuition's zero. good. Zero. Mm-hmm. Which is crazy, right? Like I said, you think about Django just recently, even once of a time in Hollywood. But you know, sometimes it's all about what's the competition. You know, when you look at Parasite, Parasite was a phenomenon, and and once you get to that level um, where Parasite is just all encompassing, it's it's going to win. The one thing I think Tarantino would have, and and this would be this is the challenge I think for any major filmmaker um, like a Tarantino is having people in your circle who are capable and strong enough and you listen to them you value their opinion to say listen man your movie needs to be shorter it needs to be tighter and you have to value the, the director at that point has to value the opinion of the person who's given them that obviously and i don't know if every director has that ability to step back and have other people assess their work and allow them to make constructive comments that might better the film and I think Hateful Eight is an absolute film that's too long. Um, so many films I see are too long. I mean, it's 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 not, and it's not really about length. You know, you could watch a immaculate three-hour film. I mean, look at The Wolf of Wall Street to me. Uh, even Avengers Endgame. Um, these are films that at three hours work. Okay, but there are also also plenty of films that do not. They they run too long. Um, again, go back to everything, everywhere, all at once. Two twenty-five. If that movie comes in at one fifty and you don't have as much repetition at the end, it's a great film. As it is, it it loses its value as it extends past uh, its natural point where it really should have ended. And it's really about tightening the screws. And I think filmmakers have to have that person in their life that is that they value and that they will listen to. And they will make the changes necessary if they if they believe them to to be accurate. And you've got to find those people you trust in your life. I mean, I think in anything you do, right? But here's the thing: who who's gonna who's gonna tell Tarantino? Right? You're scared. Most people are like, I'm not gonna go tell Quentin. He might go off on me. I don't. I wouldn't have that. You have to have someone who's very again. It goes back to that being knowing you and your assessment of the product is accurate, at least as much as you believe it to be. And again, having the instincts to know and then having the fearlessness to say, I said, I would love to do that. <laughs> Listen, let me watch your film. And, and you could say I'm crazy and what I'm telling you is absolutely wrong. But at least let me watch it and I will say, hey, I think that we can do this, this, and this. And we can make a stronger product. Sometimes maybe there's not nothing to change. But that's not very often. It's, it's very infrequent that I see a film that I don't go, okay, I think you could do this, this, and this. And it would be a stronger product. I thought Boyhood was great. Oh, and, and some people said it was way too long yep. and it meandered. I loved Boyhood oh. more than Slacker. So yes, no we, Boyhood. I know that's maybe not a popular opinion, but Boyhood is a film. Um, 
I believe, was that 2012, 13, 14? Only 14. A Boyhood is a film that I saw in Boston and I'd heard so many great things about it. And, and I sat through it. I just had uh, the birth of, of my son and my daughter was uh, both extremely young and I'm watching this film and I'm going, wow, this film is just everything. The, the, the sad passage of time is something that really hits me. And when you watch Boyhood, you really see that, right? You see them, the shot over, how many years was that? Was it, tw- was it 15 years, 10 years? Whatever the length of time they filmed it. I can't remember now, it's been so many years. But that, that we're gonna go shoot every year a little bit as the kid grows up, as the daughter grows up. And the, the sad passage of time is something that will always resonate with me. And Boyhood captures that in a way that is, uh, it's what makes it the film it is. I mean, it's, it's really something when you talk about uh, filmmaking and what Linklater did with that film, it just, it's, uh, it's truly one of the best films because of that, because of what he did, the uniqueness of that project. Who deserves an Oscar more, Tarantino or Nolan? Tarantino. Yeah, I think Tarantino, again, when you look at, you look at all the films, his, his portfolio of films is really, with few exceptions, um, everything you're gonna get from him is going to be top shelf. Now, that said, I think Nolan is absolutely right there as well. I mean, Interstellar for me is, when you talk about Nolan films, I think it's Interstellar. And again, what does that hit down on? It drills down on the sad passage of time, right? So he comes back and his daughter now is, he's, he stayed the same age. That, that just blew me away. Uh, but there are things that Nolan does that I go, listen, I don't know what your thinking is. This is what we talked about. Someone needs to get to Christopher Nolan and say, listen, I know you want to mess with audio. I get it. I know you want to play with that. It's artistic. You want to do this strange thing and, and experiment with the audio. You do not experiment with the audio, i.e. dialogue of a film that is in, you need dialogue to explain films such as Interstellar, such as Tenet, you better have that dialogue. Tenet, it, without the dialogue, you're like, people are like, what's going on here? But he buries it behind Ludwig's score um, and Hans's score in Interstellar. I remember sitting there in Interstellar and even Batman, um, The Dark Knight Rises. I remember sitting in that screening early. This was a press screening, so it was a, before it came out. And I'm sitting there in this giant IMAX theater in Boston going, why am I not hearing the dialogue? This is weird because it's usually dialed in here. The, the, something's, something's off in here. And that was, I think, one of his first things that he started to mess with the audio, Dark Knight Rises. And then you go to Interstellar. Remember, that was a big story. Everyone was going, Nolan, I, people don't come to us and complain. The theater owners were like, don't come to us and say the, the sound's not right. Nolan did that. It's not our fault. You shouldn't be doing that. I don't know what his thought process is. I mean, I get it. He's experimenting. But don't do that because it's lessening your films. And I think that, again, that gets back to what we say. These filmmakers need to have somebody who is going to come up to them, like I just said here, stop messing with the audio and your dialogue especially in these films that need it. You need somebody who has, <laughs> that you value, that tells you this is a mistake. Because it is. It is. Um, he might think it's cool. He might think it's, it's an interesting thing to do. But it is, it's, making the, it's lessening the film. And that's what we say. It's like, the choices you make ultimately either make the film better or worse. And Nolan's experimentation of audio makes his films worse. I'm going to name seven directors. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping you can tell me which one has won an Oscar for best director. Number one, Spike Lee. Number two, Paul Thomas Anderson. Number three, Ridley Scott. 
4. David Fincher, 5. Robert Altman, 6. Alfred Hitchcock, 7. Stanley Kubrick. This is another one of these trick questions. I know it. Where you're, you're, these are these are this is a gigantic list of incredible directors that go back through the the history of. Um, you talk about the vaunted uh, directors of all time, and we're going to end up with like one Oscar winner, right? I, I, I can't I, fool I, you. Yeah, yeah listen, no fooling. But you. here's that's this is what this is what's crazy about this is that is that is 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 that's the maddening part of Oscars and awards is that it doesn't always go to the best person in the list we just had of these directors, preeminent directors of all time, and, and, and the number is what? A grand total of, is it even two? Uh, there's seven, and I believe the number is zero. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. it's yeah. fine. Is it even two? Anyway. I was yeah. trying to say possibly yeah, out, of, out of all these directors, we've got to have two. That, but that's, but that's, that, goes wow what what's happening here but again I think you have to go back and look at the films that they had that were their best film and you let's just use Fincher because it's recent um, and we go to social network and, and you say um, he's he's in the right place and you just go how did this not happen because there's something else that caught fire it happens so often in award season where you have something and all of a sudden gets momentum and then it just goes snowballs up Coda just happened. That's exactly what happened to Coda. It was really a movie that no one was talking about as even an awards film, really a major player. When Apple acquired that out of Sundance, Coda was sitting there. They put it out, I believe, in August of last year. And everyone was like, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. It's, you know, we like the film. It's good. But then it kind of went away. And then Apple said, we're going to really attack this film as an FYC film, as an Oscars film, and let's push this. And it started getting momentum. It started winning here and here. But if you go back, at Coda, and you look, speaking of directors, and you look at uh, Sean Hader, who directed that film, I don't believe she has a single nomination from any critics group anywhere, which is really unheard of for a film. Um, you know, when you talk about a best picture, you're at least talking about a director that's in the conversation. Um, and I think th that that's a real rare occurrence when you look at Coda. But a lot of times it's really about timing. These, these directors had something that caught a film that caught fire up against them and it was that director's moment but the fact that you have zero is just it's I know that's it's baffling because you you go back and you go how is that possible um, but you'd have to go back and look at every year and say what was it what was the film that came through and like King's Speech and just was like oh it's King's Speech and you're like it's the King's Speech really you're kidding me no but as you go back you assess it and you're like that was the wrong decision I mean it was objectively which which film stand stood the test of time King's Speech or Social Network okay I mean any even Tarantino I believe even recently said Social Network is his best film of the past decade and probably beyond and and I, again I'm not it's not my best film of the past decade and beyond for me because of Quentin Tarantino but I love hearing when another director says the same thing that's awesome you know, and I'm going to say an unpopular opinion. I love Molly's Game yep, more yep, than I Social Network. That. Yep. Uh, maybe just a female protagonist, so yep. I identified more. But I absolutely love that. But don't forget that's Sorkin directing. Ah, okay. So, okay. So, so, so that's Sorkin directing. Good and, point. Right. So, but the, you know, it's interesting. Here, so, okay, let's talk about that's. I love that you brought that up because when you talk about director and screenwriter, the combination. Not every director is a good writer, and not every writer is a good director. Okay. When you look at Aaron Sorkin. You look at a writer who is one of the best, if not the best, working in Hollywood today, right? And you give him a script such as Social Network. And then you couple that with David Fincher direction and you get Social Network. 
Then you flip it and you go to Trial of the Chicago 7 and you get Aaron Sorkin writing and you get Aaron Sorkin directing and you don't get anywhere near, not even in the same universe. And it speaks to, I think, that these are two different skills. Direction and writing are not the same skills. And I think there are some director writers that maybe should just be directing or maybe just should be writing. Um, and I think Aaron Sorkin has yet, for me, to prove that he's at certainly at a Fincher level, but few are. But but still, maybe you know, maybe you're just a writer. Maybe you're just a director. Um, there's directors I've seen that have written, and you're just like I, I saw something recently where I said I think that if you give if you would have directed this and let someone else write the script. Uh, it would have been better. I mean, this is, something's going to pop in my head, but but again, those are two distinct skills, and and I think we have a bleeding sometimes, and sometimes you can't do it all. Maybe you can, but the chances are lower. The more that you try to do that's well, write, direct, act, you can have someone who does all these things well. I mean, Clooney has had some good films directorially, and he's been in, uh, but but I think it's a, it's hard. It's really hard to get all of those skills because those are all different things. You're juggling three completely different things. Ben Affleck and Argo. 100%. Oh, he, he shows the instinct right there, right? Ben Affleck in Argo. Uh, you know, Argo's a fantastic film, a crowd pleaser, all these things. And and he, he shows a ton of talent. Then you go look at this movie that he did uh, like a few years after that. And I'm forgetting it now. It was like a Warner Brothers film, period piece with him. and um, uh, I'm, But it was not a great film. So it's again, it gets back to you can have one great film. But that doesn't mean every film you ever make for the rest of time is going to be great. Um, and, and that's the importance of when you go down to watch a film and sit down is to forget all that you know about the director and what you're about to see and just evaluate what is there on the screen. Not who's behind the camera, what is on the screen. And I think there are people in this business, film critics, who get bogged down in who's the director, this, this, and this. I'm like, it doesn't matter. Ultimately, it doesn't matter when you think about it. It's it's really about the final product, period. What do you think about Gray Man having a limited uh, one-week theatrical run? No, I don't like it. I mean, I, I think Netflix's theatrical uh, plans are just in disarray. They don't have a theatrical po component to their films. Netflix needs a theatrical component because at the end of the day, we all know this. It's just, it's a fact. When a film is in theaters, you its visibility is higher, it's got more cachet. It just, that's how, because that's that's how I was as a kid. I mean, we all went to movies. There was no such thing as day and date at home, right? Like Netflix or Disney Plus or any of these things that, that Hulu, any name of name a streaming service. Um, it was all about theatrical. And anything that wasn't theatrical was a TV movie. So it wasn't viewed with the same lens. It was like, this is a lesser film because it's not on the big screen. And that's Netflix's challenge, is getting people to accept them as a studio, uh, such as Warner Brothers, Disney, 20th Century, obviously part of Disney, Sony, Universal, these studios, Paramount, that have the legacy uh, that Netflix does not have. But the way you build legacy is you have to have a theatrical component. So when I look at The Gray Man, a film that's, I believe, a $200 million budget with the Russo brothers, $200 million film, and you don't have it in theaters beyond one week. And by the way, not even the major chains, not AMC, not Regal. It is, you know, Cinemark or even smaller. And, and you have this $200 million film. You have to have at least a 30 
to 45 day window, theatrical window, right? They used to be 90. So let's give it 30. That's a month. A month before it's on Netflix, it's at AMC Regal, the major chains. Figure out some kind of sharing. I don't know how the profits work with, with all that stuff, the ins and outs, the numbers. But I know this. They need to get that because it'll add cachet to their film. So instantly, when you ask me about The Gray Man, I say, eh, it's lesser because it's not a theatrical film. It's not um, you know, a Universal release or a Warner Brothers release. It is, it is going to be on Netflix a week after. And again, we can't even in LA, it's gonna be very hard to find theatrically. So Netflix has to figure out how to get their theatrical game going. I can't believe they don't have it done by now. I mean, it is, it, I'm hearing, finally, you're hearing these stories in the trades that they're thinking about. I'm like, thinking about it? How did you not do this like a year or two ago? I've been saying this for forever. It's such a vital part of the visibility of a film is the theatrical component. Okay, do you think some of their reasoning behind this is like, like pressure buy? Like, hey, this sort of like, this is only on sale for this weekend, folks. So because of rising costs and things like that, give people one week. Now there's pressure. We want to see this on the big screen. No, I think I think that's that's the op, the flip of that. So because it's only one week, now you're telling audiences, you only have to wait a week to see it. Look at Paramount and what they just did with Top Gun Maverick. They gave it, 120 day theatrical window. That is four months. That's longer than the, the old 90. So what you do when you announce that it's a four month theatrical exclusive, you are forcing people to go to the movie theater to see your film. And um, and I think, the, the listen, I think we're in a different place now than we were in 2020, certainly when COVID first hit. I think if you look around, look at the audiences I'm seeing at films now, it's back to the 2019 pre-pandemic levels. So why not um, give audiences the opportunity to go see it at a theater where it's going to be that communal experience, where it's going to be something that they're going to remember far more than watching it at home. I mean, every single time, theatrical beats home viewing, 99.99% of the time. So unless someone's on their cell phone, okay, or talking or kicking your chair. Those are those are separate issues. But the actual experience of watching on a big screen with a crowd in your recliner if you paid the upcharge, these are all better. And I think that another thing that's that's really great about films and I think about going back to watching Top Gun Maverick uh, just you know last week seeing young kids and older folk right next to me, this wide swath of, of all ages going to this film, this might have been their first film back into a theater, right? Because they've been, you know, had COVID, they've done the whole thing, and maybe they were a little leery about going back. Then they go to see Top Gun Maverick, and they take the precautions they need to take, but they say to themselves, hey, you know, that wasn't so bad. And now I think I'm over my fear, and now I'm going to get out and not just go see movies. I'm going to go live life more than I have in the past two years. So movies are the vehicle for so many other things. I mean, just think about that, breaking that plane of being frightened of going outside your house, and all of a sudden you go to see Top Gun Maverick, and you come out and you go, first of all, I love the movie. Second of all, I'm alive a few days later. Hey, let's go try this and this and this. And then you regain where we were before, which is so important, right? Living life fearlessly. Because if, you, if you're if you living a life of fear, um, obviously you're not living. So I think, again, uh, just think about taking something small like that and then extrapolating it out and saying, wow, look at what it just did for, for somebody. I think about that too.
So shortening the window of opportunity for mm. theatrical actually has the opposite effect. 100%. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Shortening the theatrical window absolutely makes your film, it puts it in peril uh, box office wise because people are now going to say, I can wait 17 days. Certainly I can wait a week. But even, you know, look at HBO Max was doing that all throughout the pandemic pandemic day and date right it was on HBO Max and it was in theaters and look what happened every one of them suffered because if you give people the opportunity to watch a movie at home they're going to take it nine times out of ten right eight times out of ten seven most people are going to go I'm going to stay home um, I'll say it's cheaper uh, I don't have to drive to the theater whatever it is so I think if you give them the opportunity to watch it at home you're going to lose a huge segment of your movie going public right right there and then also uh, people will just say, I'll just wait it out. If you tell them it's going to be on in 17 days. If I was running a studio, I don't think I'd even announce. I would just say, hey, it's in theaters. We'll let you know when it's going to be on our streaming service. Because once you announce it, you instantly give someone a deadline that they know I can only, I only have to wait, you know, five weeks. I can do that. But if you make it uh, just TBA, then then they will go, I want to see this movie. Because right now, the world works certainly on Twitter, film Twitter, and social media is people want to talk about movies now. What are people talking about now? You don't want to be talking about a film you know, three weeks from now and was like, oh my God, that's old. We already did that. We already did that discussion. I mean, people go to see movies like two days after they open now. So sorry I'm late to have seen this film. It opened two days ago. But that's the world we live in now. It's white hot at the moment. So I think that's what theatrical, that's how it thrives is by making people go see the movie at the theater if they want to discuss it and people want to discuss it so they're going to go to the theater. How much money do you think The Gray Man will make in theaters for this one week theatrical? Not much. In fact, remember this Netflix does not report its box office. So we'll never know. So they didn't, you know, Roma had a, a small theatrical, uh, Power of the Dog had it. I mean, a, a number of their films had that one week window, like especially the Wards films. But they never announced the box office. They keep that down. Uh, Army of the Dead, I believe, had that for a week. I think the reports got out didn't do that well. But again, it's not going to do well because a week is nothing for people to wait. They'll be like, whatever. And plus, remember, it's not at every theater. Like, if I want to see The Gray Man, I have to probably go find it at a smaller theater here in LA. I can't just go down to AMC because they don't have a deal with AMC. So it, it, we'll never know, but I'll bet you it's not very big because it's not going to be available everywhere. Now, if it was one week at AMC Regal with the larger chains, I would say better. Um, but again, the week is not good. You really want to make it a month minimum because otherwise you're just like, I'll just wait. I'll wait. Let's talk about Red Notice. Yep. Uh, how much money would that have made? It, apparently, it was one of Netflix's most popular films streaming all time. Um, I mean, you have three major stars in that. The Rock, Gal, Ryan Reynolds. You got these three major stars. Uh, I mean, if that's a universal film, um, I can't remember when that came out. It was like it was still during the pandemic, so we had that would have been shifted. But let's just say Red Notice comes out today, and it's a Universal film. Okay, that opens with at least forty plus million, um, maybe higher. Even though it's not a great film, um, but again, average person seems to enjoy it enough. Look at the Lost City. Lost City is a Paramount movie, obviously with Sandra Bullock and and Brad and and Channing, and it did very well for them. I think Red Notice is very much of that. And I think it made over 100 million Lost Cities. So I think Red Notice is easy over 100 uh, domestic alone, probably throughout the world, certainly more because it is uh, The Rock will travel, Ryan Reynolds travels, Gal would travel, all those would go do well overseas. Uh, but it's hard to know because because it's Netflix. <laughs> if it was Universal, uh, I still think it would probably be about a $45, $50 million opening and then at least $100 million box office. So Netflix leaves that out, right? So Netflix doesn't have that all of a sudden. 
Um, do they gain more subscribers? I'm not, I'm not privy to that information. Uh, but I just don't understand how you don't make money while you can in theaters for at least a month or two and pocket that hundred million or so or more and and now you don't have that. It's just it's just like leaving money on the table. I don't understand the philosophy other than to drive people to subscribe to Netflix, but I still feel like they're going to subscribe anyhow. They might want to watch it for a second time at home. So I just think that who Netflix needs to absolutely revamp their model, certainly for their big films, not for every film, but for their big films. You're spending all this money on your budget, two hundred million for The Gray Man, and you're not going to put it in theaters. Why? It doesn't it just doesn't compute with me? Um, the business doesn't make sense to me. And again, it cheapens your film because it's not theatrical. What if Netflix puts The Gray Man exclusively in theaters for one month mm -hmm. and it fails at the box office? How much would a massive failure cost Netflix? I know we don't know too much about their box office numbers. Right. Well, first of all, we'd have to know what the numbers are, right? So we'd have to know, they'd have to report the actual number, and we'd know. Um, but I don't think, given it's July, it's a four quad film, right? Largely, it's probably three and a half. I mean, young kids are probably not going to want to see The Gray Man, but let's call it pretty wide. You've got major stars in that film, obviously. So you're looking at a, a very large chunk of the movie going pie. Um, does it damage the film if it bombs? Um, I mean, are people going to unsubscribe from Netflix? No. Um, so I don't think it does anything. Uh, I, I don't think it affects Netflix as long. People aren't going to unsubscribe. And you made at least something from the film, so I'm trying to ascertain what is the downside of of putting a film theatrically. It doesn't, other than the sharing, the revenue, right? Because the theater, the, the chains get their money, and, and the studio gets money. But still, isn't any money better than no money plus the subscribers? Again, it just doesn't work. It, I can't get my wrap my mind around it. Are movie theaters upset that Netflix has hurt their business? They probably, they definitely were during the pandemic. I mean, during the pandemic, everything was streaming, right? Look at Netflix. The stock was through the roof. Now it's tanking. People were stuck at home. So, of course, they're watching Netflix or Hulu or Amazon, any of these things. Um, but, but I think theaters were at that time. I don't think anymore. I feel like that's gone. I think Netflix, the problem, Netflix always wanted this really uh, short window. They're like, we'll give it to you for seven days or 10. Why not just make it 30? Okay, figure out a way, 45. Um, there's got to be something. Um, I would love to sit down with Scott Stuber, who I saw last night, the head of Netflix, um, and, and ask him, what's your reasoning? I would love to hear someone, because I guess they're finally talking about it, but I'd love to know, what was your reasoning for not doing it? Uh, he didn't want to put up with a hassle. <laughs> what, what's the answer? Uh, but, but I think that, no, there's no down. If it, if it doesn't do well, I don't think it does anything. You still have money. You made something from the film. Plus, you're going to get people that subscribe to watch it, even if it's bad. People still watch bad movies. Sometimes they watch them, you know, Listen, more than the, the good ones. Yeah, I have watched Firestarter five times in theaters. First of all, I have a list from AMC, which is the best thing ever. Okay, sorry if this is advertising, but AMC A list is literally twenty four dollars for twelve movies a month, twelve, three movies a week. Okay, for twenty four dollars. So once I got that, I'm like, hey, I've got three movies this week. Let's go see Firestarter again. So, and it's because it's bad. So I've sat through Firestarter five times because it is bad. It's ninety minutes, and I have a list. But there's nothing wrong with seeing through a bad movie. Sometimes it's more entertaining because you can laugh at it. Do you think Netflix will ever buy movie theaters? They should have. I, I thought they were going to with ArcLight, right? I thought that they were going to go down there. I know they have the Egyptian, but I thought that they were going to go buy ArcLight Hollywood, which would have made so much sense. It's sitting there. It's still empty. I don't know what's going on with ArcLight Hollywood, but it would be 
perfect for Netflix. They're down the street. They have two offices, right? One on Sunset, one on Vine. And they have two campuses. Right there, we can walk over to Arclight. I don't know how that didn't happen. Um, but it would be the perfect showcase for their films. Put that in the Cinema Dome, Cinerama Dome. Put it in the Cinerama Dome. And then you have your number one film in that giant screen. And, and you don't even care about profits at that point. You own the theater. So if you if it's a giant, you know, that's a huge room, obviously. And let's just say it's not full. Who cares? You're giving that film the stature that it needs um, to, again, that theatrical component that adds to the stature of your film. So buy Arclight Hollywood and then stick your films there and, and then have other films. Maybe that's their issue too. They don't want to be, you know, I don't want to have a Universal film and a Paramount film and a Disney film in with ours. I don't know what the point is. I mean, I would not suggest they buy the Arclight and put all Netflix films. That would not be the suggestion. I would just say buy it and then put in your films where you want, in the strategic rooms you want, and then let the other studios have theirs. Because you can't just have the, because the world doesn't run only on one studio's films. We've seen that. You really want that diversity of, of different studios and distributors. Maybe that and expose them to liability. To could be, could be that too. I, I, I don't know. You know, it's weird. I don't know the business of it. I just, it just doesn't make sense. I just think at the end of the day, the, the bottom line is this, is the theatrical adds to your film, the cachet of your film. And without it, with that missing the theatrical component, it is it's degrades and devalues your film. I 100% believe that. Do you think we'll be seeing some TV in, in theaters, TV shows? <sighs> I mean, you look at some of the films, uh, Sex and the City, Entourage, um, Downton Abbey. I, I think the danger with seeing TV shows and movies is that you're limiting your audience right off the bat. So when you have a show such as Downton Abbey, I never watched the show. I haven't seen one or two of the movies because I'm not, I don't know anything about Downton Abbey. So I understand people say you don't have to, but it still is like, I don't watch the show. So you're limiting your audience right off the bat. So um, if you look at, I mean, Sex and the City did well, but Entourage didn't. Uh, it was plus it was past when it really should have been. But I think when you make a TV show into a film, you're instantly making your audience smaller. And I think as a film, unless it's a very, very popular series, I don't think I want to do that as a, as a studio. I think I want to have a film that I can get as many eyeballs as possible into the theater because that's where you make the most money. Because ultimately, it's a business, right? I mean, we as much as we love films, it's still a business, and these films have to make money or they're not going to make the films. And that's why we should all want these films to succeed, from from the biggest film to the smallest film, because the big films do help finance those smaller films, and maybe they'll take chances. I mean, look at the Northman. The Northman. A focus film, they spent, in the budget's anywhere from 70 to 90 million. I've heard all kinds of things. The danger of The Northman, I think the lesson of The Northman is this, and Robert Eggers certainly learned it, Focus learned it, is that when you give a filmmaker 70 to 90 million dollars to make a film, and you make a film that is more accessible than The Witch, definitely more accessible than Lighthouse, but when you give someone that much money to make a film, you have to then, as a filmmaker, yes, you want to make the film you want to make, but you also have to understand that you've just been given a big responsibility with this cash. It's a lot of money. That you need to make a film that is more accessible to a bigger audience so that you now can get another film made. Because I think Robert Eggers even just recently said, I've learned a lesson. Well, you should have known that ahead of time. I was saying that, you know, the danger of this is that now, is Focus ever going to give 70 million to another young up-and-coming director? Probably not. They're like, we got burnt by the Northmen. Um, we lost money on the Northmen. 
I mean, I would never have given Robert Eggers 70 million to make The Northman. There's no chance. I, I can't even believe that happened. Um, and I value his filmmaking, but I also understand that the films that Robert Eggers make are not a wide audience, a wide scoped movie. It's a very, again, more of a niche. And Northman is wider, but it's not as wide as it should be. And I think that's that's the the lesson of the Northman is that with great power comes great responsibility. And they gave him an opportunity to succeed with this massive budget, and he delivered a film that underperformed. And it comes back to uh, the director and the choices that he made in the film. It's a fine film. It's not a bad film, but it could have been more accessible. Um, and I know that's probably not what he wanted to do, but again, he's not gonna get that opportunity again anytime soon. I think you've said we need more family films yep. for theatrical, mm -hmm. why is that? Well, family films, um, or I mean, again, I just go back to my childhood, going to films with my family, uh, going to see Richard Donner's Superman, I'll never forget that, with my friend and his family. It's just like, that. it's ingrained forever. I, I, just right now, I have not thought about it until this moment. But going to films with your family. I took my kids when they were young to so many films. When we lived in Boston, I was, I was doing TV there. And we went to see, like, no joke, two movies a week. And there were so many family films. Huge, uh, hugely popular time for animated films. The early 2010s, you had so many of them. Like, literally one a month. And I took them to all of them. But family films are really the bedrock because it drives people into the theater um, as a group, right? Four or more, heck, maybe your family's two. Whatever the number is, it's a larger group of people going to see the movie and they're going in and supporting cinema, which again flows down with the success. You're going to have studios having more money and take more chances on films. I think that's why we want all these films to succeed. But family films are really the bedrock of that. So go back to Marvel. Marvel is the bedrock of cinema right now, ultimately, it, whether you like it or not. We want these films to succeed because it drives people in. You may not like them, but you need to appreciate what they, the value of a MCU film and DCEU. You need to appreciate that when these films succeed, it's good for the entire cinema ecosystem. And I think that is where some people get lost. They want to see these films fail. I never want to see a film fail, ever, because it's bad, like The Northman. I, no one wants to see that film fail because I want to see someone else be given $70 million to make an independent film. Uh, you know, even though The Northman, still an independent film, but a big film. Rose Glass, I mean, God, if I could give Rose Glass $50 million to make a film, I would trust her to make a badass film. Um, you know, St. Maud is just, I mean, it's just one of those experiences you just go, wow, this is talent. Um, but, but it really comes back to really you want to see everything succeed because it benefits everyone so never root against a film ever do you really think there are people rooting against mm -hmm. something yeah oh yeah i mean i see it on i see it online all the time you, if you say if you say you don't like an mcu film the, then the MCU people say, oh, you're a DCEU guy. And then conversely, the other way, I love DCEU. Or you hate MCU. No, I don't have a dog in the fight. I really am just, again, neutral. Watching the film, does it work, does it not? I don't even care what the label is. We got to get away from all that. You can't, it doesn't matter. Um, you just want to see a good quality film. And it doesn't matter what brand of comic it comes from, what studio, what distributor. None of that stuff matters. It's the film ultimately. So you need to get less into these tribalistic thoughts. It doesn't make sense to me. Uh, I'm definitely not tribalistic. I think everyone needs to become less tribal. It, it's become your own thinker. 
right? Don't don't follow everybody else unless it's the right thing to do. But if it, but think about it. Make make your own critical decisions, and I think that's ultimately what we the job we have as film critic, film evaluator is to be absolutely unbiased and try to see the film as neutrally as possible, so that when you say something's good and bad, um, you you have that value that your words stand for something. Why do popular franchises fail? I think that it gets back to uh, when the filmmaking turns inorganic. Um, and I think that that's hard to describe when that happens and what that is, but it's it rings true or it doesn't. And when a popular film goes in a direction that doesn't feel authentic to the characters and who they are and their motivations as we've seen over the years, then that's where the franchise can be derailed. And that is why Top Gun Maverick's a great film, is because it's very true to everyone from the 86 version to now the 2022 version uh, to the to the sequel is that it is organic and it's grounded in who these characters were. So that's how you do it right. And then we've seen how it's done wrong where you just watch and you go, wait, that character would never do that. Or what was that decision? And it, it almost always just comes back to something that feels inauthentic, inorganic, and often ungrounded. And, and that's... Uh, I think, you know, it happens a lot of times. A lot of filmmakers try to do too much. I think there's value in not doing a lot. Um, you know, I look at the Dardenne brothers and you talk about their style of filmmaking is just so raw and so rough. No score, just, just here it is, almost a documentary style. That is, there's value in that. I think that if every filmmaker found some value in that, bringing everything down, it's rarely about bringing things up. It's usually about bringing down the level a little bit, right? Uh, even in Hustle that I watched last night, there's a scene where Adam Sandler uh, has to talk to somebody he's trying to save his career. And you're watching Adam Sandler and I'm going, uh, he's doing his comedic thing where he's out of control, almost he's yelling. And I'm like, if he would have grounded that, just look, bring that down here, then it's better. And I think that's obviously up to the director to do that because they, they're in charge of the, of the actors. But as a screenwriter, uh, your job is to, again, just keep the motivations of your characters as authentic as possible. And I think ultimately for me, it's always about bringing things just a little bit down. It's rarely about ramping up. It's bringing things just down. Sometimes a lot, but let's just say even that much. Just that much is significant, right? So if it's very often I see that. It's usually less. It's always less is more. Almost Always, 99.9% .9 of the time, less is more in everything in film. Which franchise is in the worst shape right now? I think Marvel's in trouble. I mean, listen, Doctor Strange 2, Multiverse of Madness, is not a great film, okay? And again, the, when I watch that film, I see times that I see Sam Raimi, and then there's other times I don't. It's almost like there's two films, right? And it feels like it was cobbled together. And nothing in that film ever rises to a level. You can watch so many films and you have some that really popped. Something in the movie is just like, oh my God. And, and then we've had plenty of films that you really are pinging that top, right? Doctor Strange never even pings. It's just a flat line. And, and you go back to Eternals and, and what Chloe was not allowed to do with that film, clearly. I think Marvel really needs Thor Love and Thunder to be essentially a home run. 
I think that people are, the brand is starting to feel to feel devalued. And I think that also speaks back to the Disney Plus shows. There's too much product. Remember, less is more. It's, it's always just comes back to that essential core. Less is more, and now we've got more is more. And you've got all these shows, Miss Marvel and She-Hulk and, and uh, what's the name, Moon Knight. Uh, all these shows, I don't watch the, the Marvel shows. I just stay with the cinematic universe. But when you start asking your audience to watch shows as homework in addition to everything else, you're starting to make your audience, right? You're starting to bring your audience down. And, and I don't know what the... I understand they want to have a bunch of successful shows. But the more you do, the more work you require. Like Doctor Strange, if you didn't watch WandaVision, you're like, what? Right? You It was required viewing to watch WandaVision. And I don't think that's the best path. So they're... Marvel's in this state where they're trying to figure out how do we work our Disney Plus shows into our cinematic universe organically. And I think it's a challenge for them because not everybody's watching the Disney Plus shows. And therefore, the impact of your film is going to be lessened because the people don't have the experience that they need to really value the film at the level that it needs to be to be truly appreciated because you don't have, they haven't watched it. It's like watching a sequel to a film you never watched the original. You're not going to have the same reaction to Top Gun Maverick as you did uh, if you'd seen Top Gun versus you'd never seen it. You're just not. It's the two in combination that is where that comes, right? That's where you have that experience that is next level because they work in symphony with one another. And, and that is, I think, Marvel's problem right now is that they have their Disney shows and they're trying to combine them with their cinematic universe and it's not really going that well. It's, I'm sorry, Strange 2 is not a good film. Eternals is very mid and then you're sitting here on Thor Love and Thunder and let's just hope Taika went batshit with it because if he did, then maybe we can get back on track. The fact the Guardians are back in this film is, is obviously a win for them. This is pretty much, we're getting back to that core Avengers group, right? Thor and the Guardians, you're back to the Avengers more so. And I would also argue, going back to Strange, that Doctor Strange is a supporting character. He's not a lead, right? He, not Cumberbatch. Cumberbatch is, is a badass, okay? A great actor. But as a lead, I feel like Doctor Strange is supporting very much as we saw him in No Way Home. He's not the focal point. And I feel like Thor is more of a focal point. A focal point. So Thor, Love and Thunder should be better off that way. Hemsworth and Thor, more of a focal point as a main character for me than Doctor Strange. But there's a lot of pressure on Thor, Love and Thunder. So having a film where the audience needs to catch up on mm -hmm. prior episodes yep. or, or universes or whatever is, is a recipe for disaster? You're asking, listen, anytime you ask anybody to do more work, <laughs> they're largely going to probably, nah, I'm good. I don't want to. Back to Downton Abbey. Uh, I haven't seen Abby 1 or Abby 2. And the reason is because I never watched the shows. Someone said, well, you don't need to. Abby 2 is a really nice, get you up to speed right off the bat when you go into it. I'm like, I don't care. I don't watch the shows. So you're ask, you're limit, you're restricting your audience. And again, um, you have if that's what you want to do, that's, that's your decision. But again, if I'm making a film, I still want to try to make a film that is as accessible as possible to the widest group of people. Not every film is going to be that. But for a Marvel film, it better be, right? That is accessible to everybody, it better be. Um, so when you ask them to watch for homework, WandaVision or Moon Knight, whatever that is, you're asking them to, to sit through 
eight episodes plus go to the movie I, I don't know I think that's the challenge for Marvel right now is again how do you do that so you are limiting your audience when you ask them to do homework outside of the film are there any franchises right now that can do no wrong mm. uh, I, I, I feel like Jurassic World's run its course so I, I don't know we're gonna find out here with Dominion um, you know that's a good question what franchise I mean we obviously have Marvel and we have DCEU um, I, I can't think of any franchises that uh, I'd have to have a list in front of me because I can't off the top of my head I can't even think of a franchise and think like could this be in trouble Mission Impossible if you look at Mission Impossible 7 um, obviously great trailer you've got Tom Cruise who's coming off of Maverick it's going to be a huge hit next summer but at the same time have we run the course with Mission Impossible um, it feels more so the answer to that is yes uh, but you know Tom Cruise puts his heart and soul into every film and you can't help but like the guy so I imagine it'll be still a winning enough film but I, for me I still want to see something original I mean ultimately I'd rather see a really good original film that is self-contained and doesn't require extra homework I can just watch this film get caught up in this universe this world that the director created the writer director came up with this film and I get lost there and I don't have to do all the homework I can just watch this film um, so I think that's where my head is I'd rather watch one singular vision of a film that is start finish one thing one project and not have to have like a franchise I'm more into those things why did Spider-Man do so well Spider-Man No Way Home did did the numbers it did almost two billion worldwide because it delivered everything that you want out of the film and some people call it fan service fine uh, there's fans out there and they need to be serviced I mean it's not a bad thing uh, again if it feels organic and it doesn't feel forced if the fan service feels like oh we just threw all the stuff in here because we want to do it but it has to have a purpose and I think No Way Home is a very good film at delivering what the audience wanted to see from that film I mean everybody wanted to see all three Spider-Man right and not only did you get them you got them in a large amount you expected them to be a cameo right you expected both of them to come back and Andrew and Toby to be in the film for uh, maybe five minutes but no they're on the whole back half of that film and that was a great very smart move by Sony uh, and Marvel is is allowing them to be back because people didn't just want a cameo they really wanted them back and they now created a universe where they could actually make films with both of them again if they really wanted to you've got the Spider-Verse you could do almost anything with it now um, and Top Gun Maverick same thing same same thing as No Way Home it gives the audience exactly what they want and there's nothing wrong with that um, again if it feels grounded organic and doesn't feel forced and just thrown in there to be thrown in there it feels like it's actually part and really legitimately deserves to be there um, like Top Gun Maverick and like No Way Home those are both 100% crowd-pleasing home runs and there's nothing wrong with giving the audiences exactly what they want why is Doctor Strange the best movie of 2022 so far? <laughs> That's definitely not true. That is 100% false. Uh, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness is definitely not the best film of 2022 and for the reasons we've discussed I mean listen Doctor Strange feels like multiple directors in here it feels like almost like a test screen movie right where you, multiple audiences all said I like this 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 let's put these things together it doesn't feel cohesive there's no moments in Doctor Strange that ping the top not one uh, Doctor Strange is definitely not the best film of the year the best film of 2022 thus far is a tie it is X Thai West horror film and it is Top Gun Maverick and for the for the different they're very different films but very clearly it's about direction for both for me it's Ty West there and it's Kaczynski on Maverick 
Anytime you have a strong directorial footprint on a film, I'm going to like it. And that's probably why I don't like Doctor Strange as much as some. No one, by the way, has said Doctor Strange is the best film of the year. There's nobody. If you are, if you have said that, reevaluate all of your cinematic decisions from here back because there's no way that that's the best film of the year. No chance. Okay, so if direction is so important to you, yeah, then let's talk about just quickly the Safdie brothers. Yeah. Oh God. So you have one film that you absolutely love. Yep. By the Safdie brothers. Oh yeah. Which I I, I would Good praise time. as well. But you have another one that I love. Probably just as much, which you say needs to be fixed in some areas. Okay, so Good Time is, I mean, listen, if we're going to pick two Safdie Brother films, obviously they're, they're most, uh, the ones they are the most well-renowned for, one, Good Time, and two, Uncut Gems. Uh, good Time is, is here, Uncut Gems is here, and here's for a number of reasons. One, the, one of the big ones for Good Time is, I don't remember the last time I saw a film that was, it's about 90 minutes. But at the end of Good Time, it's over and you literally, the credits start rolling. You're like, oh my God, the movie's over. I don't think I've ever had that feeling where you expect the film to keep going and it literally, no, no, we're done. He's in the back of the squad car. The movie's finished. It's tight. It's dirty. It's raw. It feels like raw New York. Conversely, when I go to Uncut Gems and I look at that film, there's so many things wrong with Uncut Gems. Um, I think for starters, the length. The length is bloated. It's two hours, right? Bring that to 130, 135, better film. And here's how you do that. First of all, I know you want to do the mining stuff. I get it. I understand. You want to do the gem mining. That goes on. The colonoscopy does not work. Okay, I would completely eliminate. That is gone from the film. You can start with the mining, but you don't need to do the colonoscopy. Okay, that's out. And I think even if you don't even want to do the mining, you could even get rid of that. The film opens on Adam Sandler, on his phone, which is where the film really brings in, right? That's the start. And I think if you make that change, that film is better. Also, the fact that the Safdie brothers are huge NBA fans. I get it. Kevin Garnett actually is very good in the film. But it feels like, and with The weekend as well, that it's like, hey, we have these people that are big and successful like The weekend and or Kevin Garnett. We gave him a big part. But The weekend, like, it's just because he wants to be in the film, let's put him in. It doesn't fit organically in the story. It feels forced. It's like, hey, we need to put the weekend in the movie, right? It's like, let's put the cameo in there, but it's not really needs to be there. And I think the Safties got lost from from uncut from uh, good time to uncut gems. The Safties got too much of like, hey, let's put more in our film. When remember, it all comes back to less is more, and that's why. For me, good time, it's not even a contest. If you go back and clean up the things I said about Uncut Gems, I think it's actually all there. The film, Uncut Gems is there. It needs to be literally carved down and then you're going to get a film that's better. That's Those are the worst films too. When you see a film that has the elements all there and you have extra pieces strapped on that don't service the movie as well as they should and or, or frankly aren't needed that brings your film down it's like wow I can't believe you actually brought your film lower you lowered your film by doing more less is more almost always